just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how do those preseason bold predictions look a month into the season? I'll ask Steve Gardner about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 6th. It's show number 17 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today, discussing some of his preseason bold predictions, what to make of standout starts by some hitters and pitchers in the early going, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports. With Harold Nichols apparently stuck on the rock and roller coaster at Disney World, Matt Beagle returns to Baseball HQ Radio with coverage of the National League, including injuries besetting the Reds, a versatile infielder returning to the Brewers, and a very effective reliever returning to the Dodgers. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Shohei Otani's Babe Ruth Day and IL stints for a Kansas City veteran, a White Sox rookie, and three Minnesota Twins. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee left-handed starter Ethan Small. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the conspiracy with those softer balls. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Steve Gardner is in the house. We could call it a labor of love, but we are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start, I've been asking all our guests how they got started in fantasy baseball. So I'll ask you, how'd you get started in fantasy baseball? Well, uh, it was just sort of a work thing being uh, at USA Today and a lot of sports fans in the office. Uh, We decided at one point, hey, let's have a fantasy league. So that's kind of where uh, I got pulled in. And then uh, a little bit later, uh, when John Hunt was writing the uh, fantasy baseball column for what was then Baseball Weekly, and, uh, and he left. They sort of said, hey, um, we need somebody to write this who knows baseball. And uh, that's how I pretty much got pulled into this you know, completely. And uh, that was around 2005, 2006. And uh, I've been, been engulfed in it and uh, engrossed in it and all of those other adjectives uh, since then very heavily. Do you remember those early leagues 
uh, I'm older than you, and, and I remember my first baseball fantasy baseball league was a kind of a hybrid thing that we made up the rules on our own because we heard of the idea, but nobody actually bothered to get the rules. But the mm-hmm. the main one that I played in for years was an ale only, and at the time it seems like almost all fantasy baseball leagues were based on the uh, the rotisserie handbook or whatever it was called by the uh, by the founding fathers, as it were. Do you remember your first leagues and what their formats were? Yeah, in fact, they're still going on today. Those those initial leagues from uh, when I started at USA Today, um, four by four. We're still four by four. We're still AL only and NL only. So those two leagues um, are running parallel to each other. A lot of the same people are still there. You know, twenty five years later, which is uh, which is pretty wild. But yeah, we we switched the the one big switch that we did make losses was a category was one of the four categories and we switched from losses to strikeouts uh so that's really been the the only real change that we've had in uh the entire existence of those two leagues so losses is a non-standard category you replace it with a five by five category but you're still playing four by four so which original four by four category isn't in the mix no whip for pitchers and no runs scored for uh, for hitters. Yeah, that's a pretty standard five by five addition. Do you ever think about changing those rules? We'll talk a little bit about rules, I think. But <laughs> was there ever a groundswell for on base percentage or anything like that? No, I, I think with the group that we have and have had, um, very resistant to change, as you might imagine. And as the years go on you know, 25 years later, even more resistant to change. So we've had some discussions, um, but uh, generally status quo will will win out. And how many leagues do you play in a given year, like this year, for instance? I'm in, um, I'm in 13 fantasy leagues. I counted them up, 13 fantasy leagues and two simulation leagues. So that's that's probably high the, the high point for me. I don't think, uh, you know, Last year, certainly during the the pandemic, lost a couple of leagues that we restarted. So I think that's that's pretty much uh, the max that I can remember ever being in. Are any of them unusual for, or off formats? I'll call them like head to head or points leagues, that kind of thing. Um, my original, the, those original leagues that have been around forever, uh, those are head to head leagues still. Um, I play an Audenew points league, so that's a little bit different um, and. I think that's my only one with daily lineup changes, which uh, when you're playing in 15 different leagues, you don't want to have to manage those every day. Um, and then the rest, the rest are pretty much uh, your standard, you know, rotisserie five by five. Um, nothing really uh, out of the ordinary with those. Mostly mixed leagues. Not necessarily. I think a pretty even mix um, with the home leagues labor. Also um, that's AL and NL tout wars, NL, um, I think those are maybe my only, only leagues, but yeah, the, I, I would guess the majority then yes, are mixed. You mentioned labor and, uh, in addition to covering fantasy baseball for USA today, you run those leagues, uh, the labor leagues, how many leagues are there and how many of them are you personally in? Okay. There are four different, um, labor leagues. Uh, the, the two original ones that John Hunt started the AL and NL, we added, the uh, mixed draft league in 2012, and then um, we added an, a mixed auction league in 2020. So I'm in the first three. I'm not playing in the mixed auction league, 
Um, but uh, those those are the ones that we're going right now. I would love to expand it, but as as you said, I'm the you know the one man band. I get get help from Ray Murphy to do the uh, commissioning for the auction league since I'm not in it. Um, so that that helps. But uh, I would love to add more because obviously there are more formats out there that a lot of people play from points leagues to head to head. But um, you know, and all the all these juggling uh, juggling all these balls, it's. Uh, it's not really. I'm not really able to do all of that to uh, to take on that additional uh, responsibility. I've asked uh, Peter Kreutzer and other people who are involved with Tout Wars, and I'll ask you the same question. The idea of getting these leagues together in the first place, I think, was to generate content and help home players by sharing strategies, sharing tactics, news, all of these kind of things. Do you think that's still the mandate of experts leagues to be a resource for regular players or is it more of a marketing thing now for the people who are in the leagues? For me and speaking for labor, it still is the, uh, the primary factor is to be able to, I mean, the, the Leviathan, the sports weekly issue that, that comes out, um, you know, in mid March every year, uh, that talks, you know, has all the labor rosters and the strategies and, and the prices and everything. So uh, for, for me, at least, that's still the primary factor. And that's, that's why we haven't really changed labor a whole lot, because I feel like I want to have it mirror the largest group of fantasy players out there. So that's kind of why uh, it, it's, it's the way it is. Um, but other people, you know, we've had, we've had, People come in um, to labor and do really, really well and make names for themselves. And, and uh, we try and allow them to use labor kind of as a, as a marketing vehicle um, to trumpet their success. But, uh, but personally, I think it's, it's more about the, the readers for Sports Weekly and USA Today um, than it is for, for my personal gain or, or anything like that. One of the topics that's coming up a lot in our talks here at Baseball HQ Radio, is how leagues' rules should adapt to the changing environments in real baseball. How do you respond to like roster imbalances that have been created by how Major League Baseball runs things, and how generally do rules in labor leagues get changed? Yeah, it's, um, like I said, we, we don't change a whole lot of rules in, in labor, um, but this may be something that we might have to to look at a little bit um, because it's really hard to find you know, when you're in an AL only or NL only to find an actual hitter who gets at bats on the waiver wire these days, because there are you know, the, the emphasis on pitching um, the roster spots, you know, major league baseball teams have what three, four hitters on the bench at any given time. And uh, so it's really hard to find those, those uh, additional hitters. So maybe, we we tweak the the roster mix. It doesn't have to be fourteen hitters and nine pitchers or anything like that. I think the one concession that we have made recently, most recently, was to reduce the number of innings pitched for the minimum. You know, to to qualify for for points, um, we dropped it from nine fifty to nine hundred just because the pitching because of so many pitchers, the innings were so spread out that. Some people, if you had injuries to a, a key starting pitcher or multiple injuries, you're coming dangerously close or not getting to that minimum. So we reduced it there, but um, that's really all we've all we've done with labor in terms of 
major rules changes. We've had to tweak some for the pandemic and and uh, the shortened season, things like that. But um, but in terms of major rules changes, not a whole lot. I've always thought, Steve, that there's a kind of a spectrum in how people think of fantasy leagues. You've got at one end of the spectrum at the extreme, you've got people who lean towards the, the game is meant to imitate the real game. We're, we're all supposed to be pretend general managers and running our teams oh. like general managers. And at the other end, you've got guys who say it's a game. The players and the stats and everything are the tokens that we use to try to determine who wins the game. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Uh, most people are going to say somewhere in the middle, but uh, which do you think is uh, is the more powerful motivation for playing? I think it's more toward the stats angle um, because if you want to be a real GM, that's why I play in a couple of sim leagues. Is I mean that's where you have you know building your team and adding in you know defense is important and and contracts and things like that. Um, Obviously, there are keeper leagues and stuff in, in regular rotisserie leagues. But I think, you know, just tell me the, the, the categories that we're looking for, how we want to play, you know, what the goal is, and let me figure it out. I think it's more I'm, – I'm more of a math geek. You know, I, I see fantasy leagues as, yes, baseball-related, but it's, it's a math problem. You know, how do you balance – especially in, in rotisserie leagues where you have the different categories and – you know, each category has, whether you're playing five by five or four by four or whatever, you know, an equal weight and figure out how to do, you know, how to get the best bang for your buck and cover all of those categories or punt a category or something like that. I, I think I come down more on the stat side and say, all right, these players are going to do things. They're going to generate stats. Now you figure it out to make your team the best one. And I think um, one of the things that we did during the pandemic uh, and Ron Chandler was, was kind of a driving force behind this was doing those retro leagues where you knew the stats ahead of time, but it was still interesting to see how people would build their teams, you know, having all of that information, uh, uh, you know, available to everybody who can do it best. I think that's really the, the, the fun for me, um, obviously watching the games and, and seeing the stats generated in real time is, is tremendously fun and probably the best part of, of rotisserie fantasy baseball. But, um, but the, the math and, and figuring all of that out, I think is what draws me to it more than anything. I remember back in the day when I first started playing fantasy baseball in that AL only league, the gaming aspect of it was what really appealed to me much more than the idea that I was imitating you know, Brian Cashman or something like that, because mm -hmm. there are so many factors in what a general manager does in real baseball that can't be reflected accurately in, in a game like this, unless you want to go to the extreme where, as you said, uh, you're building in maybe uh, uh, attendance, uh, you know, how, wins That's equals right. attendance equals revenue, which allow, and if you have more revenue, you can get more players and stuff like that. And I, I, I have heard of games that use that kind of format, but they're pretty rare and they don't last long. And I think probably because people get tired of the, of the details of it, because it's not their full-time job. It's Brian Cashman's <laughs> full-time job. And he has a staff of 25 people giving him advice and, and counsel. And we don't have that luxury, but you mentioned you're playing an auto new and that does build in some of the aspects of real general managership that are absent from most regular fantasy leagues. How does that work? And how did you get involved with it? 
Yeah, uh, again, just some folks in the industry, uh, Todd Zola, Eric Carabell, and and some others kind of said, hey, we're going to let's let's play in this. You know, it's a new format. And I think that's one of the things as as an analyst who does this, you know, full time, you do need to be familiar with all the different kinds of, of formats. And this one in particular, um, it adds in, you know, contracts, number one. It, it also adds in, I think, what, what is a, a really interesting twist is at the end of the year, you know, everybody gets to like add dollars to other people's salaries on, on other teams. It's a, the arbitration, I think is what they call it, uh, process. So if you've got, say, like, for instance, I had Bobby Witt Jr. as a $3 player. And all the rest of the people in the league see that and say, well, you can't have Bobby Witt Jr. for $3. So they get to, you know, you get, I don't know, maybe up to 2 or $3 you can add to a player on somebody else's team. So instead of Bobby Witt Jr. being a $3 player now this year, he's a $12 or $13 player for me. So that's, I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, players don't stay bargains in in real life baseball, you know, they go through arbitration. Um, they can become free agents and and that sort of thing. So at some point, you know, these these great players are going to be too expensive, and you're going to have to release them back into the pool. and And I think that's one of the things that does mirror real life uh, particularly well because you've got to make. You know, I had to make the, the decision to cut Nolan Arenado this off season, which I would love to have kept him, considering the the kind of start that he's off to. But um, yeah, that, I, that that's a it's a it's a different kind of uh, twist, and it's 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 fun to to do things differently. Again, going back to my original experience, one of the real weaknesses I saw it was a keeper league, and we had contracts the old S one S two option year contracts, and it's a pretty decent imitation of what goes on in real baseball. Except there are all kinds of restrictions, and the salaries are too low in the early going and too high at the in the end going and. I think one of the reasons people object to changing the rules is because they get comfortable with the rules. And even if they're sort of more on the side of imitating real general managership, there's also an aspect of them that does treat it as a game unto itself. And once the rules are established, let's not change them because then we have to rethink all of our strategies, especially in keeper leagues. Because for instance, we used to argue every year about on-base percentage versus batting average. And even the guys who recognized that on-base percentage is a better measure of skill and a more relevant measure of skill said, yeah, but I got four guys on my team who are real big batting average benefits, but not so much on-base percentage benefits. How are you going to compensate me for making a change that adversely affects the earning power, if you will, of three or four guys on my roster? Or, or conversely, He's got Joey Gallo on his roster and he paid a reduced rate because he knows right. that Gallo's going to hit 210, but he's going to OBP 380. And all of a sudden, if we change to OBP, now Joey Gallo goes from being like a $10 player to a $35 player. That's not fair either. And they're right. Yeah, exactly. Because of those keeper leagues, the, the seasons are intertwined and you, you can't make it fair to everybody. Um, and that's why, you know, you don't change rules in the middle of a season you know, everybody realizes there's no way you should do that. But essentially in keeper leagues, it's one continuous season. And so, um, you know, they're, they're just linked together. And, and that's why it's really hard. You know, maybe that's why those keeper leagues, those AL and NL only keeper leagues that I've had for 25 years, that's why they don't want to change. It's just because, 
it's always, you know, it's been linked together and one season builds on the other. And, and I think another thing too, Patrick, as we're talking about all this is you want an off season too. <laughs> you want to be able to talk about Brian Cashman. He's got to think New York Yankees baseball, 24, seven, 365. There is no off season for him unless he's, you know, climbing some mountain or, or whatever he does uh, in his spare time. But um, uh, that, that, yeah, you want to be able to just turn it off. You know, the, 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 the playoffs are a huge release for me because all the fantasy leagues are done and I can actually, you know, watch baseball and enjoy it for, you know, the game itself. Um, and, I, and I think we need a little bit of downtime, too, to help us recharge. Yeah, I'm with you, and and it's something that's fun enough to do year-round, and I have, I have no objection to that. I personally just don't want to do it. And <laughs> and if you bring up Brian Cashman as an example, I mean, if somebody will hand me whatever, $7 million a year to run my fantasy team, I'll run it 24-7, 365 without any qualms whatsoever, but nobody's going to, so yeah, I agree with you. Come Come October, I'm pretty glad that I can turn it off. Until the end of the year, I think January, most of us start spooling up with our, you know, research and looking at the players and stuff like that. Right. And writing, writing the baseball forecaster, that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's always something to do (laughs) in that regard as well. I used to play in a league and it didn't last very long, unfortunately, but you mentioned the idea that a keeper league is actually a, a, a one big long season over years. The premise of this league was we were going to play standard keeper league but the prizes were going to be given out on a three-year basis. So the first prizes wouldn't be handed out until the league was three years old. And then there would be a a payout every year after that based on the three-year rolling totals because the idea was if you wanted to build a real dynasty, then that would be the test of your ability to do that. And we were all super excited about it. And then when you realize what, what at the first step looks like the yellow brick road and oh look there's the magic city you know by the five thousandth step it's starting to look like work (laughs) and Uh and, uh, and nobody does this i think for work except for those of us who do it for work indeed and uh yeah that's 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 an awfully long focal length right there to uh to try it the, the payoff not coming for three years you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, uh, you watch the game regularly, fantasy baseball and real baseball. What have you seen this season that has surprised you beyond the softball? Well, I, I was expecting, you know, and this maybe goes along with the, uh, the, the baseball as well, but I was expecting to have the universal DH improve offense. Um, and we have not seen that, uh, wrote something the other day about, you know, for the month of April, your batting average is 231 collectively, um, in all of major league baseball, which, which is, uh, several, you know, percentage points below what the worst season in baseball history is. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that the offense has not been better. Um, and, and when you have the, the ball, I think one of the things that, that I kind of didn't really expect was you have you know players that have been you know generally you either sell out for, for hits for home runs um, and you have players you know some that are focused on making contact and others are hitting the ball out of the ballpark and and sometimes you have to you know players are forced to choose between the two you know, to get one you have to give up the other and this year you get neither. <laughs> and I think that's what's made things really difficult is because you're not getting the batting average and you're not getting the power. 
And uh, I think that's what's made this season um, a lot more frustrating for people playing fantasy baseball and for baseball fans in general who you know want to see some offense in the game. We're, we're just not getting it so far in, in the first month or so. He's a genuine five-category player. He can't do anything. But <laughs> <laughs> it's been reduced to. And he's still going to cost you $9 or, or a like 17th-round pick to, to literally get nothing. But I wonder about the effects of the decline in, in offensive production in real baseball as far as it affects fantasy in this regard. I wonder if the ratio categories are less affected because a rising tide lifts all boats or a, or an ebbing tide lowers all boats. Mm. So the relative difference hasn't changed. If you have a good, it used to be, if you had a good team, you'd finish the year at 280 and a guy with a bad team would finish at 250. Now it's 250 to 20, but that doesn't change the competitiveness of the category. It's just a lower baseline. But on the other hand, perhaps the counting stats, there are big differences because I think maybe and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but guys like Judge and Stanton and guys who hit the ball, you know, 460 feet when they hit home runs are not affected by the softball as much as guys whose home runs are primarily, you know, 396 and a helping hand from a guy in the stands kind of home run hitters. <laughs> and that really upsets the the value balance among players in a way that the ratio categories perhaps do not, but maybe I'm overthinking this. No, I, th- I think you're exactly right. And, you know, when, when overall production is down, say on offense, you know, it makes those players who you can count on to get, you know, who can still get home runs and RBIs and, and runs scored, it makes them more about, and stolen bases for sure. I mean, that's the one thing, stolen bases, that is not affected by the rabbit ball or the, uh, the, the, the mush ball or the rabbit ball or whatever is going on. Even though stolen bases have historically continued to decline throughout the years, you know, it's why people, you know, went out on draft season this year and spent a whole lot on Adalberto Mondesi, you know, because you thought that he was going to be pretty safe to get stolen bases if nothing else. And so, yeah, when, now that we're having, you know, those, those stats become more scarce. I think you're right, Patrick, in that, uh, you know, the ratios, it's more of a, you know, it's, it's a crapshoot. It's a little bit more luck involved in, in who gets base hits and, and your team when you have 14 hitters or whatever. Your team batting average, there's, there's not that wide gap. And one, you know, one uh, player that hits you know, 320 is is not going to to help you like it is in in past years because he's just not there. And even if he was, it's hard for a, a three twenty hitter to affect the overall team because of the mm-hmm. vast size of the denominators. Whereas home runs are a fixed thing. And and as I right. said, I think Aaron Judge, if we had known what was the ball was going to be like this year in this year's drafts, I bet Aaron Judge goes two rounds higher. I bet Mike Stanton goes two rounds higher. All these kind of guys who are, who have a much higher percentage of what Statcast calls no doubters, versus guys who are, as I said, are just scraping them over the fences. One other thing to to just complete the circle there is, you know, we have the humidors too affecting the baseballs. I wonder. You know, the the big question is, most of the most of the areas where we're playing baseball, it's colder weather in April. I think the question is, what happens when we get into May and June and the hot summer months? You know, do we see the ball 
know, making a little bit of a difference and, and uh, you know, becoming a little bit more conducive to hitting for power. That's, that's kind of a great unknown right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Eno Saris, uh, Ken Rosenthal piece in The Athletic the other day. They were talking about the humidors, and they had some scientist on there who said they're doing the humidors wrong because they should be matching the existing humidity in the place, not yes. setting it at a, at a fixed level, which they do everywhere except Colorado, if I remember the story. So, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, and it's kind of frustrating from a fantasy point of view because if I thought that the power outage was going to last all year, I would approach my trading and my free agent moves mm-hmm. and so forth on that basis. But I don't want to make those moves only to find out that the ball rebounds in for the rest of the season or through August anyway. And all of a sudden I'm sitting here with, uh, with no home runs or too many home runs or whatever <laughs> move I made turns out to not have been correct through no fault of my own. It's not an acumen problem. It's a, it's a environment problem that I can't control. Exactly. Exactly. I know you do other podcasts, uh, and I heard one recently, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it was, but the host asked you if you believe Cody Bellinger is back. Uh, what did you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh, Matt Williams on the Turn 2 podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, we were talking, this was back um, when it was right after, I think, Bellinger had his two home run game against the Padres. And uh, and he was you know back back up the slugging percentage was back up to five eighties range or something like that and it was a it was a valid question you know was Cody Bellinger um, you know was it temporary is he back uh, his hard hit rate was really was really high at that point um, but then he went into this zero uh, for eighteen slump pretty much closely you know almost immediately after that and it was the old Cody Bellinger again. I think the one thing that that I said then and I you know it still looks pretty prescient is that he's still striking out way too much, striking out twice as often as he did during his MVP season, and you can't get back to that MVP level if you're giving away you know that many plate appearances with strikeouts. So. Um, I'm still worried. It's, it's a shame because Cody Bellinger is still so young. You know, ha- we've seen what he can do when he's right and when his swing is grooving and everything. Um, he can get hot for a, for a full season. He can be a difference maker. But right now, he's not that guy. And uh, I don't think that uh, at least this season, especially with the, um, you know, the concerns about the baseball, I don't think Cody Bellinger is is close to being back, and uh, it may not he may not be back until you know he makes another swing change or something in the off season that um, that we uh, will see the results of in 2023 or 2024. And then the question will be who's willing to pay for it, especially the year where, where the news comes out that he's done this, but he hasn't actually been seen doing it. Uh, you also guys uh, talked about uh, Kyle Gibson. At the time, or as the last time I checked, he's got a 2.93 ERA, 108 WHIP, a little bit out of character. Although he looked a, a lot better last season as well. Uh, how in are you on Kyle Gibson? Well, he's he's shown that he's been decent in the past, um, uh, but I think the the thing, the problem with Kyle Gibson this year is his fastball is down nearly a mile per hour from last year. Um, you look at his ERA is is under three. But the expected ERA is in the three and a half range, so there's a, a bit of a difference there. Um, 
he's getting a lot of swings and misses this year, which I think is a little bit different without the added velocity or anything. So I'm wondering if that could be just a, a temporary thing for him. Um, I, I don't really see the, uh, the skills change being something that will, will continue, um, at least at this point in the data that we have. Well, Steve, we seem to be verging into talking about specific players. So let's take a break here. We'll have our National League news with Matt Beagle, our American League news with Ray Murphy. And when we resume, we can talk about players, especially the bold predictions you made before the season and how they're holding up. Good. Good deal. Steve Gardner writes for USA Today about fantasy baseball and real baseball, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Matt Beagle has the National League News. Ray Murphy has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Buyer's Guides columns, starting pitcher analyst Stephen Nickrand looks at April's leaders in base performance value, while bullpens columnist Doug Dennis spools around the bullpens of five teams, including Arizona, Boston, and San Francisco. In our daily call-ups report, our Baseball HQ scouting analysts look at the week's minor league call-ups, including some dandy prospects like San Francisco right-hander Gregory Santos, St. Louis first baseman Juan Yepes, and Minnesota third baseman Jose Miranda. And by the way, do you think if somebody was telling you not to take Jose Miranda, it would be a Miranda warning? And in the eyes have it, scouting analyst Chris Blessing takes a gander at 2021's top overall draft pick, Pittsburgh catching prospect Henry Davis. And those are just a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasts in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like player projections updated every day. We have depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. There's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report and leading off our National League News and pinch hitting for Harold Nichols, who is embroiled in protest marches at Disney World. We get to say hello again to our Manny Mota, Baseball HQ Stratomatic and Points League Analyst, Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Matt, you there? Sorry, I was trying to stare you down while I was doing my hand check. <laughs> A reference to the... Uh... Madison Bumgarner incident of the other night. That was just weird. That was very strange. Very strange. Something has to be done with these umpires to, to rein them in between Angel Hernandez, his, his horrible performances and things like this. They have to get control of the union again. I don't know why they let them run rampant again, but they did. They have. 
Well, I don't know why you're blaming the union rather than the individual umpire, but uh, I guess that's uh, fodder for another conversation. But uh, the Angel Hernandez stuff I can see because he's a very poor umpire, especially at calling balls and strikes, and I imagine the players get on him quite a bit over his relatively poor performance. But the thing with Bumgarner... I just didn't, I saw the highlights of it and I just didn't understand what was going on. I don't think I, I still don't think I understand what was going on. I, I think the problem is that they can't discipline or demote umpires. The strike zone that they use to evaluate them is two inches leeway on either side, which is a huge amount. So I think umpires should get sent up or down or evaluated on their performance like anyone else. But instead, they're never touched, never mentioned. So here we are. Well, that's a fair enough uh, comment on the situation, but my issue is I don't understand what the deal was. I mean, what, what was the umpire doing in that particular instance? Maybe he was partly uh, feeling like he could do it because there was going to be no repercussions, but what was the source of his issue in the first place is what I don't understand. That's what we'd all like to know if there was a previous outing where he felt uh, Bumgarner showed him up and he was going to get him back in this way. No one knows. No one has said. And I suspect no one will because they probably would rather just sweep it under the rug and move on. And maybe that's what we should do. So let's start in Cincinnati, Matt. The, they could use some more bad news. They put uh, outfielders Tyler Naquin and Nick Senzel on the injured list on Wednesday. They said it was for an undisclosed reason for both of them. That means a, a COVID, of course. The team called up a couple of outfielders, Albert Almora and Ronnie Dawson from AAA. I've heard of Almora, but not Dawson. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today. What happens in the Reds lineup with Naquin and Senzel out of the picture? They're, Almora and Dawson are just outfield depth. I think it's TJ Friedel that might see some regular playing time here as a result of this. And he's uh, really good as a left-handed hitter um, as far as contact. He's not going to provide a lot of power or a lot of steals, but a few. Uh, he's got a nice uh, control of the strike zone, twice as many walks as K's so far. So he's going to be just that uh, filler fourth outfielder type that maybe can give you some batting average and a steal or a homer here or there, but not consistently over the, the long run. I noted that he, uh, I went through his minor league records and uh, 2,000 minor league plate appearances, which says something all by itself. 10% walk rate, just 17% strikeouts, which is pretty good. But we usually expect those to go about 30% down in the case of walk rate and up in the case of strikeout rate when somebody moves from AAA to the major leagues because major league pitching is just a lot better. So I think our expectations for Friedel have to be somewhat limited. Yeah, I think he's just the guy you're going to fill in to try to get some counting stats. Um, he's not someone that's going to key your your season, but in an NL-only league, for example, those counting stats, can, you just need plate appearances and things to add up, and that's about all he's going to be good for. The Reds also got further bad news. They put first baseman Joey Votto on the COVID-19 list on Tuesday. Uh, some good news coming with that. Catcher Tyler Stevenson was activated from the concussion list. I guess we should say that uh, Joey Votto has just been bad news for the Reds all season period, even when he was playing. It's amazing how he totally changed his approach, which people have been begging him to do for years, and hit 36 homers in 2021. And this year when he tries the same approach, he's just not able to do it. And the real secret seems to be in the ground ball rate. His walk rate is about the same as, as uh, 2021, but he has a 49% ground ball rate. So when he is making contact, 
it's not going anywhere. He needs to get back to lifting the ball. Whatever he's doing is resulting in too many ground balls for someone at his age and his lack of speed at this point. Uh, sometimes you might have a, a light hitter with good speed that you're trying to chop the ball on the ground. But for Votto, he needs to get some line drives and fly balls. And a 49% ground ball rate is good for a pitcher, not for a hitter. And meanwhile, uh, catcher Tyler Stevenson was actually off to a pretty good start. Yeah, he's a pretty good prospect and had a nice year last year. He hasn't shown the power you may expect from someone his size and playing in that ballpark. But uh, very consistent plate skills, good plate patience with a 10% walk rate. Uh, certainly a guy that many people had drafted as that second catcher in a two-catcher league or your your last catcher in a one-catcher league with lots of upside, we thought. But in that lineup, it's going to be difficult. going to be difficult to generate counting stats, but you're right. I would expect, given how big he is, as you said, but also the ballpark, the fact that he gets the bat on the ball in the strike zone, uh, those all of those kind of things should add up to more home runs than uh, we've seen so far, certainly. But the ball is now dead, according to what, what a lot of people say. Should we expect any home run power of significance from a guy like Stevenson? Well, I think the question to me is, if the guy is going to normally a home run hitter, he's going to hit the homers. It's the Jeff McNeils. It's that secondary level of power, the guy who hits 10 home runs a year that's really going to suffer. And McNeil has said, I'm going I'm to try to hit homers because I, I crushed one the other night and didn't even make the morning track. There's something different with the ball. And I did hear something about the ball, the first wind of the ball being a little less tight, a little looser. And uh, that is what everyone's noticing. And there is definitely a change in the ball this year, aside from the humidors. And I'll be talking more about the baseball later on in my extra innings commentary. Meanwhile, I have to ask with Votto out, who's on first? Uh, Colin Moran. He's still around. He was with the Pirates there for several years, and uh, he can maybe add some batting average potentially, but uh, lots of ground balls in his profile, just like Votto had been. So you may just see more of the same there from the first base bag. He's been around long enough to know, again, some counting stats, maybe some average if he gets hot, a couple homers. I mean, that ballpark is very easy to hit home runs in. So even Moran could hit some homers if he get the, the ground ball right up. But like Votto, it's way too many ground balls, as I think you and Ray talked about last week. We did. Uh, let's move over to the New York Mets. And by the way, uh, how about that uh, Mets-Phillies game on Thursday night? Seven runs for the Mets in the uh, bottom of the ninth, and they steal one from uh, from Philadelphia. No matter what the Phillies do, they have had the worst bullpen luck in the last several years. They just cannot hold a lead of any kind or stay in a game. It's it's just getting getting maddening. Corey Knable gave up three of the runs, I know, uh, I don't imagine at the start of the inning they expected he was going to be in there with a seven-run lead. Uh, they usually save him for save situations, and indeed one popped up after they scored the first four runs, and then Canable uh, gave up three more runs to cost them the win. Uh, an interesting situation, I think, in Philadelphia because overall they're not a bad team. I think they have some potential, but they've got to lock out those games that they're winning in the late innings. Well, and again, that's been the same problem they've had, and frankly, they didn't address it tremendously in the offseason. I mean, Knebel had a great year last year with the Dodgers, but only 29 innings. He's not closed, been a closer for a while. Not that he can't do it, and I think he's a fine pitcher, but, uh, you know, you rush him in. He's, I mean, closer's a mental situation we've talked about many times. You have to have that mentality, and to have a guy who's kind of think he's got the night off and then suddenly rush him to warm up and throw him in the game quick isn't the normal process that a closer goes through. 
but they've just struggled in that bullpen. And, and with Ranger Suarez's struggles in the rotation, if they had some depth, they could try to move him back to the bullpen. But um, there's just not the depth there overall in that organization pitching wise to make a move like that. Suarez was actually a pretty successful in the closer role uh, earlier last year or the year before. I don't remember now, but uh, he was pretty effective. Yes, he had an excellent year last year, proportionally. Uh, great Stratomatic card because the poor defense behind him and a bad uh, off, uh, offensive park is really good for a pitcher's card because adjusting for the park makes the pitcher's card that much better. He had a tremendous year last year, very underrated, and it was kind of a surprise to many that they moved him back to the rotation, but Joe Girardi felt he had earned it with his performance, and you have to understand if the pitcher does well and he wants to be a starter, you want to reward him for that. But he certainly was much more effective as a reliever. Back to the Mets, they placed right-handed reliever Trevor May on the 15-day IL. Right triceps inflammation was the diagnosis after an MRI showed a stress reaction in his right humerus. And nothing humorous about the story, of course. Phil Hurts for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What happens with the Mets bullpen with Trevor May on the shelf? Well, there's another team that had historically struggled with their bullpen, but Edwin Diaz seems to have gotten through some of the initial issues and really settled down, done a great job closing. But their middlemen are still a work in progress. Seth Lugo is not the pitcher he used to be. Uh, Adam Adovino is getting older and striking out guys, but has not been very successful on the surface so far. He could be a hidden gem there. In a team that's as good as the Mets, he could vulture some wins. He's striking out 16 guys per nine innings and is expected the ERA is under three, despite an ERA of six and a half and a whip of 166. He does have good skills under there. The other hidden guy, I think, is Drew Smith. He had an excellent year last year. His only issue was uh, home runs to left-handed batters. But he was very good last year and has also done pretty well this year if he throws strikes. Now, he's walking four batters per nine innings, but he's striking out 12, 11.9 actually, per nine innings this year. So he could be a guy that could step in there and help out as well because Lugo's had his issues this far, uh, thus far uh, this year. So Smith could be a guy that's not rostered anywhere that you could pick up inexpensively to vulture some wins and get some strikeouts. Ottavino's first appearance, Matt, was really inauspicious. He came into the sixth, had uh, bases loaded. Tyler McGill had put the three runners aboard. Uh, Ottavino, a walk, a double, a wild pitch, and a single. He scored all three of McGill's runs, raising his ERA from 162, which was ridiculous, to 243, which is a little less ridiculous. But as you said, Ottavino's really showed some terrific skills, including a 16 strikeout per nine, which is exactly what you want in a bullpen guy. And in every league I'm in where that National League players participate in, he's on the free agent list, because, uh, in part because of that terrible outing uh, with the McGill situation a few nights ago. That's why it's so important to look what's the underlying stats, especially this early in the year when the sample sizes are so small. One bad outing can change everything. Uh, starting pitchers find that as well. He only got five starts. So if you had one really bad start and four really good ones, your overall ERA, you haven't had enough good starts yet to, yet to counteract that and get you back to normalcy. So it's really important now not just to look at the stats, but look at the underlying stats and the trends, especially with the short and spring training. Pitchers are just now getting up to speed. And you're seeing guys like Aaron Nola start to do better now. He's had a few starts under his belt and several other pitchers that just needed to see, seem to get up to speed. The Mets recalled a right-hander Adonis Medina from AAA. I have to confess, I haven't really heard much about Adonis Medina. Is there any interest in him as a prospect coming up? Uh, it would be a real long shot. He was a, a top prospect a few years ago. We even gave him an 8C rating last year when the Phillies called him up, but he just has not pitched that well in the Phillies organization. I'm not sure of his 
uh, if there's an injury underlying that, but he fell off all the prospect lists and we only gave him a six B uh, last month when he was called up. They did strike out the side against the diamondbacks, but you know, diamondbacks are maybe one step above the reds, maybe with their lineup. So I don't know how much you want to read into that initial foray into the majors this year, but you can keep your eye on them. But I mean, I guess you have the potential once you're a hot prospect, but his, his track record in the minors has not been particularly good. His ERA was near five and double A and triple A. So, um, be a surprise if he broke through, but you never know. But not a guy to put any fab bids on this weekend, I guess, is a way no. to put it. Uh, meanwhile, moving back to Philadelphia, outfielder Bryce Harper is still struggling with an elbow strain. After meeting with the team doctor, they said there's no change to his diagnosis. Phil Hurts on the story for playing time today. What's the latest on Bryce Harper? Well, they did try out that arm to see how it felt. They were just giving him a lot of rest. I think it was 10 days of rest. They did stick him out there in pregame to just to see how it was, if it's making any progress, and it really wasn't. Uh, I don't understand how a left-handed batter who extends and push, pulls with his right arm, how that doesn't hurt your throwing arm, elbow, when you swing. My son throws right-handed and bats left-handed. That's a lot of torque on the elbow when you swing, even though it's not the same exact motion. Uh, I just can't imagine that is good for the arm. But the doctors know better than I do, and they say it doesn't matter. Thank goodness for the DH for the Phillies. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to be a Phillies pitcher with Kyle Schwarber in left and Nick Castellanos in right. Uh, not much is going to get caught out there. And Odebel Herrera is not really that fantastic of a center fielder in the middle. So any fly ball to the outfield and the, the winds do swirl in Philadelphia is going to be an adventure. And just limited range, even if it, the winds are dead calm, it's still a problem for Phillies because, I mean, let's face it, Kyle Schwarber's no Bryce Harper uh, foot speed-wise and is not going to be able to just chase down regular fly balls. On the subject of elbows, I happen to know uh, a fair amount about this because I've had elbow surgery, I've got a bum elbow now on the other side, and there's a big difference, I think the difference between throwing a ball and using uh, and batting a ball is that batting a ball is a backhand motion uh, for a right arm of a left-handed hitter. You're pulling uh, away from yourself, but with the back of your hand facing the way that you're going. But throwing a ball is a, f is a forehand motion. It's the palm of your hand is facing forward. And those two actions place strains on different parts of your elbow. Uh, the reason I know this is because I was doing both more or less incorrectly when I was growing up as a kid, throwing curveballs wrong, throwing footballs wrong. I was getting results. So nobody ever said, you know what, you're throwing that, that ball wrong. Nobody even cared about that in those days about mechanics and keeping things safe. So I can see that, uh, that Bryce Harper's elbow is not barking at him when he's hitting because if the problem is throwing, it's a different part of his elbow that's being affected. So it's, Something that does take a lot of time, oftentimes, of course, it results in surgeries, which is exactly what they're trying to avoid because there's a quite a recovery time and a lot of physio involved in that. So uh, something to monitor, uh, Bryce Harper can hit. That's, that's a reason to keep him in the lineup if he can hit, and, of course, a reason to keep him in your fantasy lineup as long as he's out there. He's still a terrific hitter and well-deserving of his spot. Just keep an eye on this situation. Let's go over to Milwaukee. They activated Luis Urias from the 10-day IL. He had a quad injury, and in a corresponding move, they designated right-hander Jose Urania for assignment. What happens in the Brewers lineup now that Luis Urias is back in the fold? Well, it really hurts the playing time of Jace Peterson, who had a nice year last year, but that was a surprise to most. He's really a career backup infielder. But Urias has really 
has some great underlying skills here. His uh, he emerged with some power the last few years. He struggled when he first came over to the Brewers, but his uh, power index, his PX, is one twelve. His expected PX one twenty five. His hard hit contact rate is one hundred nine, which is again above league average. And the Brewers Park really does help home runs a little bit. He has good plate patience with eleven percent walk rate and good contact seventy six percent contact rate. So he has good underlying skills. He's a young guy who's just starting to feel comfortable and develop before he got hurt. So, and he's got plenty of playing time. He can play anywhere in the infield that they need him. So they can utilize him any way they want. So he should play pretty much on a full-time basis and produce. He's not going to be a superstar, but certainly across the categories, he should be a contributor. Strong lineup in Milwaukee too. So there's run production is quite heavily lineup dependent as we know. And, uh, if Rowdy Telez isn't hitting home runs all over the place and clearing the bases before Urias gets up there, but maybe he'll be on base ahead of those big swats by Rowdy Telez at eight RBIs the other night from Milwaukee, a couple of home runs, including a grand slam. And he's having a good year. One one day, perhaps we can talk about Rowdy Telez. Uh, he almost had 10 RBIs. That second, uh, that double in the last inning there off position player went off the top of the fence. He almost had two grand slams in the same game. And I I remember that that has happened once before that I can think of, but I don't remember who it was. I'll try to find that out and maybe throw it in uh, in uh, my extra innings comment later on. Uh, our roster analysis are giving Uriah seventy percent of the playing time at third and a uh, bit of time at shortstop as well. But for anybody who's looking at Uriah, he's actually already eligible. He had uh, more than twenty games in. Uh, 2021 at third, short, and second. And boy, nowadays, especially with the limited batting uh, situations that a lot of benches have around the major leagues, those guys who have multiple position eligibility, especially corner and middle, rather than just middle-middle or corner-corner, that's a little bit of extra value for a guy like Urias. Gives you a lot of flexibility, especially in, I play a lot of the NFBC draft champions format, where you pick 50 players, and those are your 50 players for the whole year. It's very uh, valuable in that type of format, especially. In Los Angeles, the Dodgers activated right-hander Tommy Canely from the 10-day IL. He had a bit of surgery on his right elbow, actually a lot of surgery on his right elbow. He's been effective when he can stay on the field, as Jock Thompson noted in playing time today. But for the immediate future, where does Canely fit into LA's plans? Well, I think this is a tremendous spot with Blake Trinan on the DL with a shoulder injury, or IL, excuse me. Um, Canely's always been able to throw hard when healthy. He did a great job with the Yankees and with trying and out that really gives an opportunity here. And one of the best teams in the league to vulture some wins before his Tommy John surgery, he had a 367 ERA, but a 283 expected ERA with 35% strikeout rate, excuse me, strikeout percentage and 27 holds over 61 innings pitch. He is a good pitcher when healthy. He's been clocked at 97 miles an hour. And again, with the quality of that offense in L.A., there's no reason he can't be very valuable in vulturing some wins and maybe even get a save or two. Manager Dave Roberts said on the weekend that Trinan's recovery is going to be a longer process, is what he called it, and that he was going to use Canely as a leverage reliever, which means getting in there late in the games when the game is on the line. And certainly 
We had Trinan down at BaseballHQ.com's roster analysis for about 10% of the saves, so there might be some saves, as you said, for Canely, in addition to the high leverage work that leads to vulture wins. That's an interesting thing. And finally, uh, you're a Cleveland guy. A long time ago, there was a pitcher named Mike Clevenger who was quite something. He moved to the Padres as a free agent, immediately went on the Tommy John list, and he's just now coming back. And he made his first big league start since September of 2020, uh, dealing with a knee sprain this year. Jock Thompson again for playing time today. What do we know about Mike Clevenger's status as we speak? Well, he, he got on the mound, did okay, I guess. Four and two-thirds innings, three earned runs, four hits, three walks, four strikeouts. He did throw 95 pitches, so he was stretched out and ready to go. While it wasn't fantastic, um, he's been a very successful pitcher in the past. He's got a lot of moxie. He's a very interesting guy to watch. He has an unusual windup, which some other pitchers we've now seen copy his uh, constantly moving style, whether he's throwing from the stretch or from the windup. He has this big leg kick at the end of his um, delivery, and I've seen many other pitchers do that since then, but he was one of the first ones that in his follow-through kicks his leg sort of towards first base to maximize his momentum towards the plate. Um, So he's an interesting pitcher. Great track record, so the Padres do want to get him up and going. They have some depth here in starting because uh, Joe Musgrove, Sean Manaya, and you Darvish are locked in. Blake Snell's coming back soon. Mackenzie Gore's done well, so it's a pretty crowded situation. What are you going to do with him? And I can see them, you know, potentially piggybacking Gore and Clevenger initially just to make sure Gore being younger and Clevenger coming off the DL. They could do like a Rich Hill, Tanner Houck situation like they're doing with the Red Sox right now. But I think a six-man rotation, we're seeing more movement to that. It gives people an extra day off, and you Darvish isn't a spring chicken anymore. He's uh, 35 or older now. That He could probably use a day off here or there. And we just see teams being much more cautious with usage. So a six-man rotation in the short run does not, does not sound out of the question. I think it's something that I could see the Padres doing to just let things play out until someone struggles or has a DL issue. I didn't think of the idea of the piggybacking, but that makes a lot of sense, especially for a guy like Clevenger, not only coming back from an injury, but he's going to need to get ramped up, as you said earlier, because of the missed spring training. Uh, A lot of pitchers are a little bit behind and just now rounding into form, and that's going to be compounded with a guy like Clevenger, who in addition to also not having had his spring training, also spent some time this year on the IL with that knee injury. It might be a really smart solution for them to piggyback him with Gore or maybe Nick Martinez. Yes, or Blake Snell, who's coming off, since he's coming off an injury. Um, I was really surprised to see Clevenger go 95 pitches. So obviously they feel they built him up fine. But uh, conceptually, I just thought, well, we'll see what his recovery time is. And uh, you want to piggyback left, right normally, or else I could say you could piggyback Gore and Snell um, back to back. But usually you do left, right there. But it's just... Teams are being much more open to new usage patterns, and maybe Nick Martinez, as you said, could be the one. Uh, but he's been okay too so far. Uh, very surprising coming back. So it's a good problem to have because most teams are short of pitching; they don't have excess. So I can see them going with a six-man rotation until things plan out. Now that you've said that, Matt, it makes me think there might even be a possibility that they could piggyback Gore with Snell or. Just take the four pitchers, Gore, Snell, McKenzie, and Clevenger, and they could piggyback two pairs to make the fourth and fifth starter in the rotation with while reducing the workloads on all four of those guys. 
this could be really interesting. I'm very curious now to see what uh, San Diego does. Of course, as you said, once the injuries strike, they'll have to probably move back to a more traditional model. But in the meantime, this could be really fun and interesting to watch. Well, and they are a fun, interesting team. And the question is how much they think out of the box compared to other organizations. And we've seen teams mocked when the uh, Rockies, for example, several years ago, pitch guys in three inning increments. Um, when they were trying new things, Tampa Bay was mocked with the opener until it was proven to work. So teams are usually a little hesitant, but the piggyback is now deemed okay and acceptable. So maybe something they try in more than one instance. Yeah, it's always safer to be the second guy into the pool rather than the first, I suppose. Do I correctly remember you saying on a previous call, this would have been a few years ago, that in Stratomatic, you guys were doing things like openers and uh, best best guy closing and leverage plays way before anybody in uh, in real baseball was doing it, and it was working. Well, we didn't do openers because the Stratomatic rules would not allow a reliever to start if he'd never started before. But what we did notice is that relievers did a lot better per batter. So you'd see much earlier use of relievers. You would see relievers using a closer role more often um, that might be a setup guy because you want to use your best pitcher uh, in, to close oftentimes or the high leverage reliever using your best reliever at the most important part of the game. So, yeah, there are a lot of pitching strategies. As tiring factors in, in Stratomatic mirror baseball where pitchers are now averaging five innings to start instead of six or seven, uh, you have to be ready for a deep, much deeper bullpen and that we've experienced that in the stratomatic world just as well as the real world. <clears throat> but the use of, of a reliever and understanding that in that type of format where it's per batter performance, stratomatic managers were much more aggressive in building and using relievers and the major leagues have followed that as they've also now realized, hey, per batter, relievers do better. So let's do them one inning at a time and that's better than a starter going through the lineup the third time. I wonder if they're going to figure out that uh, certain relievers are really good against one or two hitters like dominant, and certain other relievers are capable of going five or six hitters to keep you in a game or to get you through a couple of innings. That's interesting. And on the uh, staying with Stratomatic, did, uh, does anybody in that game do the piggybacking style? So start a starter, but only let him go a couple, three innings, and then stick another starter in behind him to get another three innings? Oh, yes. And there are some uh, ruthless managers who would start a left-hander for like two batters and then take him out. They didn't call it an opener, but if your league didn't have a rule against it, they would say, well, he started, he was a starter, and now I can flip your lineup over and take advantage of the fact that you have all your platoons in there. But most leagues outlaw that, make a starter go a minimum amount of innings. But uh, certainly we've been piggybacking. You know after a right-hander, you're going to bring in a lefty nine times out of ten, depending on the, the part of the lineup. Um, the actual opposite thing sometimes we do is we will go lefty lefty. So let's just say the guy's got a bunch of uh, great left-handed hitters on his bench and you just don't want them to come in the game. I'll throw three lefties right in a row. After my starter lefty is tired, I'll bring in lefty relievers. So I don't ever have to face that big pinch hitter because his lineup may be weaker against left-handed pitchers, for example. So I will not purposely not switch from lefty righty because I want those weaker hitters in the game, whichever way the opponent's lineup works. Well, that's one of the things that is really interesting about simulation games like Stratomatic and uh, Score Sheet and, and those kinds of things is that you, you are free to 
try these kinds of things and nobody's going to mock you as, as they, or maybe they do mock you in Stratomatically. I don't know. Did anybody ever make fun of you for trying something unorthodox? Um, initially, I think I have pretty much credibility there. They, they usually say, Ooh, what does he know that I don't? But there are some crazy things where you have a bad, you have a real strict platoon guy, but he happens to be an okay hit and run person. He doesn't have much of a lefty, doesn't have much chance against a lefty pitcher if he'd never played against them. So maybe you hit and run, you know, the major leagues you'd bunt, but in the Stratomatic, he may be an okay hit and run guy in a certain situation that you'd have, a, you can see your odds of success. So you do some strat things that probably aren't really happening in the major leagues, but it really opens your mind and makes you think about different ideas and different ways to manage the game. I still squeeze bunt a lot in Stratomatic especially if I'm in a ballpark that doesn't allow a lot of scoring. Um, and I have a good bun. There aren't a lot of good bunners out there, but uh, I still find that success rate to be very interesting, especially with one out and you have a weak hitter or a, or it's a way to beat an excellent pitcher. How do I beat um, someone who's having an incredible year? Carlos Rodon. Well, if I've got a guy on third and one out, if I can squeeze him home and get that run, I'll take that chance because the odds of my hitter getting a run, if it's a bad hitter are not very good. So it does bring in some of the old-fashioned strategies as well. Yeah, I'm still constantly amazed at how few major league hitters can lay down a bunt. And But I think with the, if they stick with this dead ball, I think we could start seeing more of them because uh, guys who used to hit 15 home runs, as you said earlier, uh, 10, 15 home run guys are going to see their home runs dwindle to 5 to 10 maybe because of the deader ball. They better figure out some other way of contributing or they're going to be uh, contributing in AAA. Well, I think if the shift this year will be last year the shift, but Jose Ramirez is given to be pretty much a wide open left side of the infield when he bats left-handed. Now, with Franmil Reyes struggling behind him, it may not do any good to get a bunt single with two outs. But if he wanted to, he could probably bat 600 just by bunting. And he can bunt and can run. So uh, so if you, I'm surprised more people aren't doing it just to counteract the shift. Joey Gallo can bunt. Bryce Harper can bunt. They're good bunters who can run. Yes, you'd rather him hit a home run, but if you're down three to nothing, you need a base runner. I'll take a bunt to start off the inning rather than a pop-up or a strikeout trying to hit a, a one-run homer that doesn't really get us there. And the other aspect of it too, of course, is if you bunt often enough, pretty soon they have to stop shifting you, which opens exactly. opens things up for your regular kind of hitting. Uh, Matt, uh, thanks a lot again for pinch hitting for uh, Nick, who's uh, having some fun down there in Florida. And uh, I don't know when we'll speak again, but I hope it's soon. And in the meantime, take care. I'm happy to help anytime, Patrick. Good to talk to you. Matt Beagle writes about Stratomatic and points leagues for BaseballHQ.com, and he pinch hits for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, a Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Happy Friday, PD. Yes, happy Friday it is. And uh, boy, a happy Thursday for baseball fans everywhere. I know this happened up in Boston and it wasn't really a good story for Boston fans or for the Red Sox, but how about Shohei Otani, the first starting pitcher to bat in one of the top four spots in a game at Fenway Park since September 20th of 1919. And you get no awards for realizing that that feat was by none other than Babe Ruth. This is really a great story for baseball. He just keeps impressing, right? The, you know, yesterday's seven innings, no runs, six hits, no walks, 11 strikeouts. I mean, the, the the Red Sox had to come after him with, you know, Rich Hill going four innings, and then they piggybacked him with Tanner Houck. So the guys for the Red Sox who were 
just doing the starting pitching couldn't even carry the workload that Otani did for 99 pitches. Man, he had 29 swinging strikes and oh, and he went two for four. So, you know, <laughs> he did the work of he, he came as close as he can to beating the Red Sox single handedly. I'm reminded of in ball four, Jim Bouton has a comment where one of the pitchers on the Seattle pilots, they still hit in those days. Of course, there was no DH yet. And, uh, one of the pitchers by some miracle hit a home run, which was uh, absolutely un- unexpected. And, and the reporter asked Bouton about it and he says, isn't this exciting or isn't this good news? And Bouton says, no, it's terrible news. Now all of us are going to be expected to hit home runs. <laughs> exactly. Well, nobody's going to expect the Angels pitchers, I think, or any other pitchers to be hitting home runs. But you mentioned uh, the two for four. The two hits were among the top five in exit velocity for the game, both sides, which is something. And that the the one I loved was the single off the off the monster. It hit the 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 hand operated scoreboard, and it knocked his own number out of the starting pitcher slots, and it fell inside. <laughs> it was perfect. It was like a Roy Hobbs deal, not uh, not Babe Ruth. Probably degree of difficulty on that is higher than actually knocking the cover off the ball, right? Yeah, exactly. That's certainly true. It's just a spectacular outing. And I guess to turn this to a fantasy, uh, how can I put this? And so to return this to a fantasy perspective, if Shoya Tani is available in your league's free agent pool, you should snap him up. Uh, yeah, if Shohei Otani is available in your league's free agent pool, it's it's time for a new league. Well, speaking of snapping up guys from the free agent pool, Ray, a lot of fantasy managers snapped up Seattle right-handed starter Matt Brash, and they came to regret it after he hung up a string of stinkers. Anyone who cut Brash has company in Seattle's front office because the team sent him back to the minors on Thursday. Rod Trusdell covered this story for Playing Time today. Where does the Seattle rotation go from here? It's a little bit of a wait and see. The short-term moves are they called up Riley O'Brien and Danny Young. That's a righty and a lefty uh, from AAA, which appears to be just depth for the next couple of days until that rotation spot comes up again. Uh, We're probably going to see another move at that point. Uh, One of those guys will probably go back down to make room. The question is for who? Uh, Rod Rod speculated that it's probably going to be George Kirby time, which is pretty exciting. Uh, he, Kirby was the number 15 prospect on our top 100 list this past preseason with a very solid 9B rating on our prospect scale. Uh, he's, he's an elite ceiling, uh, you know, and a pretty high pros- high chance of reaching it. Uh, and, you know, he's been turning heads that, you know, would be a call up from double A, but he's been turning heads so far down there this year, a 182 ERA and uh, a 32 to five strikeout to walk ratio in 25 innings. Uh, but, you know, there's not a lot of, upper minors experience there, but you know, it might be a little overstating it to say that the hand of the Mariners has been forced here by Brash's situation and his, you know, sort of increasing effectiveness. But, uh, you know, they've probably seen enough from Kirby and, you know, one of the things I think we talk about these days is, you know, there may not be that much difference between double A and triple A. Uh, so, you know, Kirby's going to be a, certainly a dynasty target for, uh, you know, as he makes his debut, uh, but you know, we'll have to wait and see a little bit about the uh, the short term transition. We've seen this kind of go both ways for uh, you know young pitchers making the leap in 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 the last year or so. Yeah, I was just going to ask if there's any sort of research to suggest that that pitchers or players, for that matter, who lack 
AAA level experience just generally do more poorly than than players who do have that experience, or does it come down to talent anyway? And it's rather a moot point. I can't recall any research off the top of my head. My my knee jerk reaction is that pitchers may have an easier transition than the batters because if their stuff plays, their stuff plays. You know, um, whereas the pitchers are dealing, with, you know, a batter coming up is going to deal with you know more exploding sliders and that sort of thing. But if your stuff is ready, uh, you know, I'm th- you know thinking of you know even. You know, not a direct comparison, but even what we're seeing from Mackenzie Gore right now, who went on that, uh, you know, you know, sojourn throughout, uh, you know, rebuilding his prospect status after losing so much time in the last couple of years, and he has you know precious little high minors experience, but he's you know thriving in San Diego right now. And then you go back to you know even you know the other thing I like to do in these situations is think about team context and how you know what the team's track record is and. We can look right to Logan Gilbert, who is maybe the, both a good example and a little bit of a cautionary table tale in that, you know, Gilbert, you know, took some lumps when he first came up last year, but got better as the year went on in terms of, you know, his skills were looking good, but his results weren't there for much of the year. But now, uh, you know, in his first full season this year, he looks great out, out of the gate. So uh, maybe that's a, a more realistic expectation for, Kirby, if it is him getting the call, and it, you know it'll be a bumpy ride at first, but uh, you know a year from now he'll probably be settled in, and you know absolutely a fantasy asset at that point. And you mentioned that George Kirby is a nine B prospect, which is as you said that's an elite level prospect with a fairly significant chance of attaining it, which is not the same thing as Matt Brash. Yeah, Brash, you know, was a little lower down our prospect list, and. You know, I think we had reliever concerns about him all along, and it sounds like the Mariners are going to transition him to the bullpen back in AAA. So at least for the moment, uh, you know, if Brash as a starting pitcher was an experiment, you know, they've they've decided to put that on the shelf. This is a case where Brash got a lot of buzz or helium or viral, whatever you want to call it, this spring based on uh, some of the uh, – pitcher gifs and stuff like that that were floating around the, the, the Twitter sphere. His stuff is, you know, undeniably impressive, uh, especially in, you know, five second gif form, but the, uh, you know, the, the ability to repeat it and put it where he wants to on a pitch to pitch basis is not something that is easily as easily captured on Twitter. And that's where he was falling short. Yeah. You might not want to use that term virus when you're talking about these things. <laughs> Yeah, fair, fair. We'll have some virus talk a little later on in this segment, but some good news, meanwhile, for Houston, they get their closer, Ryan Presley, back from the IL. He had a knee problem, not an arm problem, but as we know, you get a knee problem, then it turns into a hip problem, then it works its way up the kinetic chain until sooner or later you get an arm problem out of it because your legs are so important. Uh, Jock Thompson covering the story for Playing Time today. How does the Houston bullpen shift with Presley back in the role? Yeah, I think you're hitting hit the nail on the head with the kinetic chain there. This didn't seem like a big issue for Presley, but it seemed like the Astros were being very cautious with him and trying to avoid that uh, chain reaction effect that you're talking about. And they gave him, you know, more, I think, more time than we initially expected on the IL. And I think what we learned while he was on the IL was the uh, the more significant information here is that I think we all sort of thought that Hector Neris uh, was sort of next in line in, the, in that bullpen. 
uh, should anything happen to Presley, but when something did actually happen to Presley and ended up being more Rafael Montero and a little bit of Ryan Stanek actually picking up the saves. So if Presley goes back on the shelf, obviously things are subject to change, but I think that that would be our default assumption going forward. Presley came back last night. It didn't go great for him. He blew a save, gave up a two-run homer, uh, but the Astros won at the bottom of the ninth, so it was more of a blown save with a win and an all's well that ends well sort of thing. So I would expect, unless there's bad news on Presley this morning after that outing, that uh, he is now entrenched in the closer role and Montero, Stanek, and Neris all go back to doing setup work in front of him. I'm going to be curious to see how much they baby Presley in back-to-back save situations for the next little while as well. Uh, ordinarily, we might say, well, you know, a, a solid closer, pitch a Saturday, gets a save, gets into a save situation Sunday, they'll call him out. It'll be two or three type uh, days in a row before they'll start thinking about leaving him uh, on the bench and let somebody else handle the closing situation. But I wonder if Houston's going to be more cautious than that and make it a day here, a day there type of thing. I think that's very likely and maybe for, you know, maybe for as long as they can get away with it. They, you know, Montero in particular is throwing really well uh, and given the depth of that pen that I, I was just referencing with, you know, it's not just Montero, but Stanek and Naris in front of them. They have enough options that they can sort of hold one guy back every day. And if the, you know, if they use say Naris and Stanek to get the Presley one night, then the next night, if, if they want, Presley to not be available, you know, they've got Montero to close or, you know, insert name here. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's, you know, for, you know, draw a line in the sand for the month of May, at least you very well may not see Presley throw back to back games. Also some welcome good news for Oakland. Heaven knows they could use it. Uh, Ramon Laureano is expected to be ready to return right when his 80 game suspension is over on Sunday. Uh, Rod Truesdell covering this story for playing time today. I assume that we assume that Laureano steps right back into that Oakland lineup. Yeah, obviously not a surprise. We've been projecting Laureano's playing time since, you know, to, to start this weekend, essentially since the beginning of spring training. So, you know, there's not a lot of playing time adjustment in our projections here. Uh, you know, maybe we're shuffling around a little bit as to who the playing time losers are. I think we've seen, for instance, that Kristen, Christian Pache is enough entrenched in the center field role that, you know, he's not hitting much, but, you know, he obviously, his calling card is his defense and that's been on display in Oakland. So I think he's pretty secure in center. Loriano probably goes over to right. And, you know, our initial cut, was that Stephen Piscotti is probably the primary playing time loser, uh, maybe a little bit of impact on Seth Brown here. But really, to your point, things aren't great in Oakland. No, Virtually nobody is hitting other than like, Sheldon Muse. So anybody who hits will you know, be, in a, be in the mix for the left field DH first base playing time. And, of course, the unspoken question here is how long is Loriano going to be in this picture anyway before he gets traded? So uh, the, 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 those even those who are losing opportunities here may find them reemerging in short order once Loriano gets back in the lineup and presumably immediately starts being marketed. I thought you were going to say before he gets hurt, which is another uh, situation as far as Loriano's concerned. He's had a lot of trouble staying on the field, even when he wasn't uh, abusing PED. So uh, now that he's back, it's kind of a, a race against the clock for Oakland if they can get him off their roster before he uh, before he gets hurt again. And I think maybe the same thing might be true for, for trading leagues in fantasy. 
you know, capitalize on the news. Hey, Ramon's back and, uh, and send him packing in as short order as you can. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's not one of these assets where you just plug them in and you're like, well, if we don't, you know, if we don't trade them this week, we'll trade, we'll, we'll eventually get around to it. It might be a strike while the iron is hot or the, the patient is healthy situation. I'm, I'm reminded as you're saying that of Laureano's start to, it was last year, 2021, right? Where he stole, I think nine bases in the early going of the season by, by about this time last year, he probably had nine. And then, you know, he, there was a, there was a hidden injury or something and, you know, then for the next like three months after that, he didn't steal a base. So yeah, there's uh, you know, there's going to, you'll be curious to see if Oriana goes out there guns blazing. And then, you know, maybe he's trying to play his way out of Oakland too and showcase his value. And then, yeah, all things get lined up. You find the right trade partner. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this gets done in the next couple of weeks. Rod Truesdell notes that it's going to be poor contact that's going to keep Loriano's batting average from being any kind of asset, but, you know, decent power, decent speed. Uh, I wonder how the soft ball is going to affect the, the power side of the equation. I don't remember him as being, uh, you know, Giancarlo Stanton towering fly ball type home runs, but we'll see about that. And what about Chad Pinder? He's actually been playing fairly well of late. Is he one of, another one of the guys who figures to lose time along with Piscotty? I mean, he might be forestalling that because, like you said, he's been one of the one of their more productive hitters. I would think he probably, you know, between his, you know, we have, they haven't taken a lot of advantage of his versatility yet. He's been basically the primary left fielder, uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's probably where he sticks for a little while. Uh, he's, you know, he's been relatively productive, like you said, he, and. That's big news in this Oakland lineup. Uh, that's kind of why I didn't mention him along with, you know, the likes of Seth Brown and Piscotty, who have been, uh, you know, have been less productive. Pinder's hitting 300, and I, I did mention Sheldon Muse, who's also, uh, you know, hitting, he's actually hitting more like 315. So in this day and age, anybody hitting over 300, you know, even without power is better than the guys who are hitting, you know, in the low 200s also without power so <laughs> i would say that as long as pinder and muse can uh continue to put bat on ball and have it elude fielders they will uh they will probably continue to find at bats can i quote you ray murphy says 300 is better than 175 groundbreaking analysis i know <laughs> i know that's what you get here at baseball hq radio boy uh, that kind of analysis uh, the white Sox put infielder andrew vaughn speaking of guys who are hitting pretty well he goes on the 10-day injured list on thursday he's got a bruised hand not usually a long-term type of thing but it is a tough break for vaughn and for vaughn's fantasy managers rick green covering the story for playing time today what goes on on the south side with vaughn at least for a while not available yeah, you wouldn't expect this to be a long-term uh, issue, but it is, of course, the latest in an accumulation of issues with the White Sox. I, I think it was last week in our spot here, Patrick, we were talking about the imminent return of Yoan Moncada to third base, and, well, we're still waiting for Yoan Moncada's return. And, of course, Eloy Jimenez is out for uh, you know at least another month after the uh, the hamstring su- injury and the subsequent surgery there. So, you know, it's... Uh, the depth of the White Sox is getting tested. In this case, assuming that Vaughn is close to a minimum IL stint, it's probably just Adam Engel and Lurie Garcia filling in here. 
We did speculate last week that, you know, Jake Berger was hitting pretty well in Mankata's absence. So if Mankata beats Vaughn back, then, you know, it could be Va- Berger and some DH with Gavin Sheets sliding out to the outfield or something like that. Uh, so those are probably the, uh, the, the the way the dominoes fall. Danny Mendick is back on the roster taking the spot. He's another versatile piece, but he's really the uh, 27th, 26th man are we back to now? So he's... Uh, so he's, uh, you know, he's there just for depth and not much of a fantasy asset. Uh, so we'll, uh, the first domino to fall is probably Mankata coming back. So we'll see a little bit what happens there, but they're, they're up here in Boston this weekend. And, uh, assuming Mankata doesn't reappear until early next week, I think it'll be just, uh, Engel and Garcia. And Rick Green did point out that, um, Vaughn had some tests. He had x-rays, he had an MRI and they all came back clean. The, so it's not a break and it's not anything super serious. I mean, anybody who's hurt their hand knows that it can take a while because you use your hands and certainly a major league baseball hitter is no exception to that. But, uh, it looks pretty good for Andrew Vaughn, I think in the relatively short term to, to get back into action. Let's go over to Minnesota. Second baseman Luis Arise, right-hander Dylan Bundy, both tested positive for COVID, speaking of the virus. That was on Thursday. Uh, what fantasy effects here? Uh, Bundy could have tested positive for whiplash after his last couple of starts, but I guess they decided to go with COVID. Um, as far as Arias, you know, it's part of a part of sort of a bigger set of dominoes there. Uh, you know, he was playing a little bit of first base because – Miguel Sano is also out now with a more significant injury. Uh, you know, he had uh, knee issues and ended up having surgery on a torn meniscus. So he's out for a while. So Arias, who has been kind of playing the utility role, slid over to first base to fill in for Sano. It's not clear whether Arias has a positive test yet or is just a close contact or could be one of these one to two day COVID IL stints while they just wait for him to clear something. Uh, but in the meantime, it's prospect Jose Miranda who is the sort of the big news here, who got called up when Sano went on the IL and is now the you know, going to slide into the first base spot, uh, especially with Arias out. And, you know, he's a notable prospect, too. He's an 8C rating on our prospect scale. Uh, you know, he had 300, he had 340, I think, with 30 home runs in the minors last year. It's not, uh, you know, you said earlier, uh, uh, we're talking about, pure power. He's not a Giancarlo Stanton white tower power guy either, but he's a good bat to ball, good OBP with power kind of prospect. And, you know, he, we, we talked last week about the concerns about Alex Kirilov, who's on a rehab assignment down there uh, in AAA. And now it's an O out and Araya's out at least for a couple of days. You know, the door's open for Miranda for at least a little while at first base. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. It will be. I noted that the uh, playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com who assessed playing time probabilities for the various teams, the Minnesota analysts gave Alex Kirilov 5% of the 15% that Sano loses and Miranda gets the other 10. That feels about right to me, but uh, if anything, if Miranda hits, I think he stays. I think that's right. And now, you know, breaking news that we haven't really uh, broken down the playing time guys haven't broken down yet, but now we've got uh Carlos Correa with a finger injury after last night's game, and we'll have to see how the ripples of that shake out. You know, Miranda's not a shortstop per se, but you know, he is versatile enough that he could play over at third, and Gio Urshela could move over to the shortstop. So, as the attrition mounts in Minnesota here, you know, there are more paths for 
Miranda in the short term. Of course, he's going to have to hit. He's uh, he's two for seventeen so far, so he's going to have to uh, going to have to stake a claim at some point. But they are lacking options to sit him down if even if they want to. Kansas City put infielder Carlos Santana on the 10-day IL. He's got right ankle bursitis. They recalled infielder Emmanuel Rivera, uh, Jock Thompson again for playing time today. Uh, we can talk about who gets the playing time in the meantime, but first, do you think this is the end of the line for Carlos Santana? I'm starting to wonder, at least. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week with the Royals and talking about you know when Mondesi got hurt, whether they would move Bobby Witt over and create some... DH or first base at bats for the likes of MJ Melendez and Nick Prado, who are, you know, big pieces of their future lineup. Melendez is now up because Cam Gallagher got hurt and they needed a backup catcher for Perez. Uh, I did note that Melendez has gotten two starts, one at catcher and one at DH. So they're at least thinking about using him in that way. And now that Santana's on the IL, it's, you know, Ryan O'Hearn is the immediate playing time beneficiary. Prado's not tearing the cover off the ball in AAA. I took a, I took a look this morning to see if that was the case, and he's got five home runs in 100 at bats, but he's hitting about 250. But then again, I mean, the Royals as a team have 13 home runs, which is next to last in MLB. So not tearing the cover off the ball isn't really disqualifying right now, right? Especially the 250 part, <laughs> you know, 250 with five totally. home runs makes him George Brett these days in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, uh, you know, you know, Carlos Santana is quickly drifting into, we have to pay you anyway, but we're in last place with you and we can be in last place without you. I mean, you know, 60 at bats is not enough to write him off for a career, but he's hitting a buck 59 with one home run. And I'm pretty sure Nick Prado can do better than that. And it isn't just the uh, 60 at-bats or whatever. This has been going on for Carlos Santana for quite a while now. Yeah, it's not a, uh, you know, th- this is not somebody like Joey Votto who, you know, raked all last year and has now had a bad three weeks to start the season. You know, he, um, it's been since 2019 since Santana really was an asset at the plate. And it's been, he had a rough 2020, a rough short 2020. And, you know, then he signed with the Royals and it's been, uh, it's been rough ever since. And before we go, Ray, we started this segment by talking about a, a terrific, somewhat weird story with Shohei Otani in Boston. It's very out of the ordinary, shall we say. Let's close with something that's out of the ordinary as well on the other side of the, of the scale. This is not the kind of story that is really that interesting, but it, it is interesting in the way that it's being handled. Uh, Texas sent Willie Calhoun and catcher Sam Huff, but Calhoun's a guy I'm interested in talking about got sent down to the minors, and he responded by saying, I demand a trade. So I, I'm wondering, Ray, to whom, first of all, and who would want Calhoun, who is another guy who's really not tearing the cover off the ball? He is not tearing off the cover the cover off the ball at all, and he seems to have a very high opinion of his self, self-worth at this point, which I guess, I guess is good. You want him to be confident, right? But the uh, making a trade would imply that someone else is actually dialing up the Rangers and saying, hey, what do, we, what do you want for Calhoun? And something tells me that call hasn't really come in too many times this week. Uh, you know, Calhoun, you know, looking at his career record, had a, you know, he, he had a good first, full, first long look in the majors, but that's all the way back in 2019 now when he hit 269 with 21 home runs in half a season. And since then across, you know, there have been some injuries and some uh, sporadic playing time since then, but I mean, it 
the ensuing three years add up to 400 at bats of, I mean, that I'm just eyeballing it, but that might be just over a 200 batting average, maybe 220 and eight home runs in half a season. And he was hitting all of a robust buck 36 with a home run and two RBIs in the early part of the season, which, you know, I think I need more time to shake off this buck 36 start is a, is a pretty weak defense. If you ask me, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean? You're firing me. I've been terrible. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, I don't deserve this. I, you deserve much worse actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Meanwhile, I guess that this, this looks like a short-term opportunity for guys like Nick Solak and uh, Zach Rex, who I actually have to tell you, I've never heard of before today. But in the longer run, I wonder if this is a, a chance, another chance for Leody Tavares. Yeah, I was wondering that too. I've got Tavares buried deep on my roster in some draft and holds. Uh, and I do wonder if he works his way back up again uh, sometime soon. Certainly he, he sort of moved up the depth chart a little bit here. Um, Jock uh, Thompson, our good friend and former HQ radio contributor, had a piece this week that pointed out that it seems like the short-term beneficiary is uh, with you mentioned Nick Solak, who's gone from DH to outfield a little bit more now, and it's allowing them to play both catchers. It's allowing them to DH Mitch Garver and get Jonah Hyman into the lineup. And Hyman, in particular, has been swinging a good bat. Uh, I don't know that uh, that this is a long term solution because if they want to DH Garver all the time, they may need to carry three catchers, and that gets that kind of stuff gets problematic. Uh, but for now, it's Garver and Heim who seem to be. Uh, swinging the bat and the Rangers are riding that, but yeah, there's probably a couple more dominoes to fall here and the wheel could well spin back to Tavares soon. It'll be something worth looking at because uh, he could provide a little speed, which is something that's uh, always being looked for. Uh, as far as Solak, Jock Thompson noted that he has good speed, but the problem Jock says is his success rate's not high enough and no manager's going to trust him to be out there trying to steal bases if he's actually reducing run expectancy by getting caught whatever percentage of the time it is. I presume, because Jock made a note of it, I presume his success rate is below the 72 or 73% generally considered to be the breaking point where you're costing your team rather than helping it. Yeah, you know, there's two schools of thought. You hear that, you know, in this age of, you know, the home runs not clearing defense, et cetera, that teams would go back to playing small ball and maybe you'd see a little bit more of that sort of thing or a little more opportunity for guys like Solak to run. But, you know, the flip side of that coin is, you know, <laughs> when you're when you're when your batters are making outs more frequently, you're even less willing to want to make outs on the base paths, right? Uh, so, yes, last year Solak was – uh, only seven for 12 in stolen bases. He's one for two this year. So that's, you know, barely over 50%. He was better. Uh, you know, he was nine out of his first 10 for his career in 2019 and 2020. Uh, maybe he was better at picking his spots or maybe uh, catchers realized that this is someone they have to start paying attention to. And the, now the worm is turned, so to speak. So uh, yeah, if he, his next caught stealing maybe his last for a while. Let's put it that way. Still an interesting thing to keep an eye on, especially if you're rummaging around in your league, deeper leagues, looking for some stolen base help or any kind of help. Uh, Nick Solak, keep an eye on him is what I'd say. I'd, I wouldn't rush out and put in a significant fab bid this weekend, but I'd certainly think about keeping an eye on him. The downside to that as a strategy is 
it's very rare that anybody with any kind of something to offer, especially in deep leagues, will pass through waivers for an entire week. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the Rangers have, as we're sort of summarizing here, have a lot of moving parts and there's an opportunity for Solak or, you know, insert three other names here to sort of get hot at the right time and stake a claim. I think the the flip side to that argument, though, is that this is a pretty bad team context, right? It's not a very good lineup. It's not a very good hitter's ballpark. It's not a very good division to play in other unless they're playing Oakland. Uh, so I, I think the upside from contextual factors is, you know, not optimal. There may be, you know, if you're comparing him to, uh, you know, some, some other generic waiver wire options, uh, you may very well find better plays. Indeed you might. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week. Awesome. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of what's coming up on the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Next Friday, it's another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and of course our usual great stuff, National League and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's coming up next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve, it's bold predictions time. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Patrick. This is the segment I've been dreading. (laughs) Let's get into it. In early April, you issued some bold predictions for the 2022 fantasy baseball season. We're about 24, 25 games in at this point, 15% or so of the season. So let's check in with your bold predictions and see if you still like your calls. The first one, and I have to say this one didn't strike me as especially bold, uh, your call was that Mike Trout is once again a top five fantasy player. By Baseball HQ Valuations just the day before yesterday, I looked, uh, Trout is 17th in overall fantasy value. How do you like his chances of making your bold prediction come true? Well, you're right, Patrick. It was not a very bold prediction. But I think what the uh, what got me to to want to write about Mike Trout was a lot of the preseason discussion about him was centered on the fact that, you know, he's injury prone and he's, you know, he doesn't steal bases anymore and he's too big of a risk to be going you know, in the first round, certainly, you know, in round one, but even maybe not even in round two. And I felt like that was a little bit harsh because you look at the the pandemic season. He did not play 162 games in the pandemic season because nobody did. He played 53 out of 60 games. So he made it through that just fine. Um, And every single year that he had uh, with the exception of 2021 and recency bias, I think was paying a, a playing a lot bigger of, of a factor. Every single season before that, he gave you excellent fantasy production, even if he didn't play a full season. So you know, a lot of home runs and 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 runs scored and and everything else in 100 and you know 20 games versus 162. So I felt like he was getting unfairly you know blasted in the preseason. And so my point was that what happens if Mike Trout actually can stay healthy and can avoid, you know, a torn thumb ligament from sliding head first, you know, some of these freak injuries that he's had. And so, 
was just, hey, let's just remember Mike Trout is really good, is one of the best players in baseball. So if he slides to, you know, you in the the bottom of the of the first round or in the second round or something, you're still getting a very very good player. So I think that was the uh, the impetus for that. And yeah, he's he's come out um, leading the uh, American League in slugging, OPS, runs scored, you know, tons of extra base hits. Still not running a whole lot, um, and I don't think he has a stolen base yet this season. But I prefer to look at it as, hey. He's on second base all the time, or he's rounding the bases every time he hits the ball. So uh, there are not that many opportunities for him to steal. I still think the wheels are good, and uh, if the situation is right, he'll, he'll be he'll be running. And and injuries are are not what's keeping him from uh, from from stealing bases or being a top fantasy player right now. And he certainly generates a fair amount of stealing opportunities by walking as much as he does. And That's and true. I and I think maybe one of the issues that is affecting Trout's willingness to run or his team's willingness to let him run is that that's a pretty good lineup. And you don't, even if you expect he's going to steal bases at a 75% average, the gain in run expectancy is not sufficient to offset the probability that you're going to score the run anyway, because one of the guys behind Trout is going to hit a home run or it's going to hit, mm-hmm. have an extra base hit and Trout can score from first. So I think there's a couple of, of, factors weighing against the likelihood that Trout steals a lot of bases. I don't think he's going to steal none, but I bet his steals are way down. I'd put the over-under at five or six. And if I'm correct, then he can't be a first-round guy anymore because there are too many other players who do have the speed in addition to the power and all of those other offensive attributes. Uh, I would I would, uh, I would, would disagree. I, I think Trout can hit enough home runs score runs, you know, he could lap the field in runs scored and drive in runs to be to the point where, you know, he doesn't need to steal that many bases to be a, to be a top player. So, um we can we can certainly agree to disagree on that. Well, if we're ever both in the same league, uh, I bet you get Trout and I don't. There you go. <laughs> which which <laughs> might be good for you and bad for me. Certainly he's a great player and I'm not and especially in on-base leagues, Tout uh, that I play in the American League mm-hmm. league is an on-base percentage league, and he's a monster, even if he doesn't steal bases. When he was stealing even 10, he was by far the best player in the, in the, in the draft. It isn't that way so much anymore. But maybe it could be Twins outfielder Byron Buxton, and your second bold call was that Buxton was going to basically win the MVP by taking the Bryce Harper route. What is the Bryce Harper route to winning an MVP? Well, uh, Bryce Harper earlier in his career um, had had some problems staying healthy because he was always running into walls in the outfield, and that's you know that's been a cause of, or a source of injury for Byron Buxton as well. And the talent is there, the five tool talent for both of those players. And you know, once Bryce Harper was able to kind of just dial it down ever so slightly and stay healthy he was able to let his talent flourish and he put up an MVP season, put up a second one last year. So I think Byron Buxton, that's, that's really the only thing missing. You know, that's the, the one thing he has yet to master is staying healthy because we've seen him the last couple of years, you know, his slugging percentages and, and exit velocities and all of those things indicate he's hitting for much more power. Um, just had, uh, 
you know, had the, had the walk-off home run um, a week or so ago that went 469 feet or something like that. I mean, he is capable of being that monster offensive force. And uh, all he needs to do, and I think the Twins are kind of, you know, they understand that. And he's not playing necessarily every single day. You know, he's getting a day off here and there just to make sure that he can stay healthy and, and those nagging, you know, nagging injuries aren't building up. Um, and, and I think, you know, like, like Trout, he doesn't have to play 162 games. He can be a league winner even playing 140, but he's got to play more than, than you know, 35 <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, or even a hundred or hundred and ten wouldn't wouldn't do the yep. job, and I agree with you. It looks to me when I watch him play that he has dialed everything back. And the two players that come into my mind when I think about Byron Buxton is in the current day. Fernando Tatis seems to have this exact problem, you know, mm-hmm. just gung ho, balls to the wall. I'm going for everything when the team is going, especially with sliding. If the team is saying you can't do that because your shoulder won't take it. You know, you're going to injure yourself doing this and they move him out in the outfield and he's instead of sliding <laughs> and hurting himself yeah. that way, starts crashing into fences and hurting himself that way. And Tatis, yeah. I think is a, a pretty good example also because he ended up being a really valuable player despite missing a whole bunch of games. And the other guy I think of Steve is uh, former Cincinnati Red Eric Davis, the body type, uh, you know, the, the, the production from all kind of angles. I think Byron Buxton, as you said, man, he could be something if he could stay on the field. That's a great call, Eric Davis. I mean, had one of the great seasons in fantasy baseball history too um, with stealing bases and hitting home runs and, and everything like that. Um, and again, yeah, he and Buxton both kind of that wiry, you know, uh, amazing power and torque and everything in their swings. Um, that's a great call. And uh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent with the, the Tatis comparison, especially remember that one time that that Tatis scored tagging up from third base on a pop-up just outside the infield. And he tagged up and, and slid head first into home. That's another one of those plays. that's it's great on the highlight reel, but if you're a Padres fan or a Tatis fan, you're like, what is he doing? <laughs> no, because there's, you know, there, there's so little to be gained in that small little uh, one play when you're talking about the, uh, the impact it could have over a lengthy absence for the season. No kidding, especially sliding into home. I hate seeing any player on any of my rosters sliding into home because if the catcher gets the ball, you're sliding into a brick wall, basically. He's perfectly protected and he's wearing hard things right around where your head and feet and hands are going to be. I really don't like that. The Eric Davis comp, the other thing that worries me about it is that Eric Davis had a tremendous peak, but his peak was very short. He had Mm -hmm. a a relatively quick fall-off and he was out of baseball not long after he had that... uh, like 40 home runs, 70 bags or something like that, that, that year that yeah. you're talking about. I think that's really interesting. Prediction number three was that Steven Matz was going to be more valuable than Robbie Ray or Carlos Rodon. Uh, according to Baseball HQ values, Steve uh, Matz and Ray are in a large group of pitchers who are around $0 earned, but Rodon is 22nd in value with $27 earned. How can Matz catch up to Rodon? Well, that this is one of those where I, I think again people were talking about the the free agents, left-handed pitching free agents, you know, and who was more valuable was was Ray better, Rodon better. Um, I was like, well, hey, don't forget about Stephen Matz and uh, the fact that he doesn't strike out as many batters. 
as those two guys, but he still was going to what I thought was one of the best um, free agent landing spots for a pitcher uh, of anybody in St. Louis with five gold glovers on defense. You know, allow you don't have to have a huge strikeout ability to be successful um, as a pitcher there with that defense behind you. So uh, that was that was kind of the point of that one. And so far, I mean, Matt's has been okay. Um, it just had a, a, a nicely pitched, what, five or six shutout innings the other night, getting the win, uh, third third win of the season. So he's been, he's been fine. I think the problem or, or the issue that I saw was that Carlos Rodon still injury questions. He was able to stay healthy for the most part, you know, last year. He did miss some time. And the fact that the White Sox, who drafted him, who knew him best, who gave him that minor league prove it deal last year. And he did that. They didn't even offer him a contract to me. That was kind of a red flag. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of the Intel and the information that we usually have in the off season because of the lockout. So, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a speculation on my part that, that Matt's would be good, that maybe Radon wouldn't be as good as we thought. And that Robbie Ray, after that Cy Young season, um, where he had a 90% strand rate, um, that maybe some of that was a little bit unsustainable. So I, I don't expect Matt to, to necessarily pass both of those guys, but there is a possibility of it and, and a pathway for him to be very valuable and undervalued um, and those other two guys to be overvalued. So that's, that's kind of where I was going with that. I think you're right, uh, especially with pitchers. Anything could happen. I mean, he could finish, Matt's could finish with $1, and if Ray and, and Rodon both <laughs> get hurt, he wins, right? That, that, that's one thing. On the other side of the argument, though, uh, Matt's is not a big strikeout pitcher, and it kind of harkens me back to the Mike Trout example where if you want to be a top-value offensive player, you need to get some stolen bases, or you need to hit a lot of home runs, 55 or 60, mm-hmm. something like that, to help in the counting categories. And I wonder if Matt's has figured out something that works for him in real baseball. He, he stays out there longer than most pitchers, which gets him some wins, and that's got value. But the strikeouts are probably not going to be there in the, in the big numbers that we'd like to see. But I still think he can be good. Yeah, I, I think uh, like like his teammate Adam Wainwright, you know, doesn't get a whole lot of strikeouts in terms of strikeout percentage or K nine. But if you make thirty plus starts, um, you're gonna you're going to accumulate enough strikeouts that that you're going to be uh, valuable and you'll help your team. The Rick Porcello path to value, we call it. I had Rick Porcello that year. I, I remember the example very well, and I've tried to incorporate it since. You know, there's something to be said just for sheer volume. The same is true of plate appearances, I think. You're given a choice. If you can just amass the most plate appearances, you're going to do well because you're just going to count by accident. You, you, what you need, Patrick, is you need to figure out the acronym to what poor cello spells out, you know, pitcher uh, option, <laughs> you know, something <laughs> like that, to figure out your own plan. Speaking of marketing yourself, that, there you go. That's, there, there's, there's something it's you can do. It's got to start with pitcher of record. Because <laughs> okay, he stays in the game long enough to be the pitcher perfect, of the a lot, right? Perfect. We'll, we'll workshop this uh, <laughs> in the right. offseason. We'll send it back and forth until we get a, a Porcello, which we can use like uh, Picota or something like that. And right. Make tons of money like all all uh, uh, acronym builders 
make. <laughs> um, we need more acronyms. That's right. Yeah. Prediction number four, Giovanni Gallegos staying in St. Louis becomes a top five closer. He's got five saves so far, but a 562 ERA, 138 whip. That might've changed a little bit because this is a, a few days old and more worrisomely, I think for the, for the prediction, Fireballer Ryan Helsley seems to be right yeah. on his heels with his 100-mile-an-hour fastball. How likely do you think it is that Gallegos does indeed finish the season in the closer role in St. Louis? Actually, I think it's still pretty good because, you know, Helsley is is so valuable um, in that fireman's role. And, and he did have the, the save that Helsley had the other day was a two-inning save, which, you know, some people could interpret as not having confidence in Gallegos. I kind of look at that in a different way as, as maybe he's you know, how we thought of Josh Hader and how the Brewers used Josh Hader um, a few years ago as that fireman who comes in and can give you multiple innings if needed. I think that somebody, if you have somebody who can do that and is not just a one inning, ninth inning pitcher, that guy is more valuable to you on a real baseball team than maybe a closer who can just get three outs with, with a three run lead. So I think the Cardinals. And, and Oliver Marmol will take advantage of that and use Helsley in the seventh and eighth or something like that to the point where, you know, he's been obviously phenomenal so far this season. Um, last I checked, 16 strikeouts, no walks. I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic. So Gallegos is somebody who can nail it down, you know, and, and maybe if he gives up one run and you're leading by two, he still gets the save and, and the numbers may not look that great, but I, I look at opportunity again and Gallegos, the, the thing that spurred that prediction was the fact that they were thinking the Cardinals were thinking about moving Jordan Hicks to the starting rotation, which they have done. Alex Reyes, who got uh, more saves than anybody on the Cardinals last year um, was injured. And I felt like the path was, was very clear that uh, Gallegos would be getting saves. I still think that's the case. It's just that we have a, a great new weapon that maybe can hold more leads even for Gallegos getting to the ninth. So uh, I'm still I'm still okay with that despite the ERA over five. Yeah, that'll get straightened out. It's so few innings. I think all it takes is one poor outing and all of a sudden your ERA skyrockets and then you get five or six good ones and it goes right back down. I think his I think you're right in your analysis exactly. And I think the the hidden ace in, in the hole for Gallegos wanting to remain in the closer role or his fantasy managers wanting him to keep that role is Marmol. I think this guy's a really sharp manager, and I think he's really aware of, of leverage situations and how to use them. And from the point of view, if you look at it from the point of view of a guy who does have that understanding, he looks up and down his bench, he says, I've got a guy here who can throw 100 miles an hour for six outs. If I put him in the game, he's going to throw 100 miles an hour and get those six outs for me. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe sometimes going to be the eighth and the ninth, but I think more often any time the middle of the order comes up in the seventh, that's going to be uh, Helsley time. And uh, Gallegos, I think, is really, as you said, going to be the beneficiary of some mop-up type saves of the kind that, uh, you know, that really anybody who gets a lot of saves has to get a lot of those three-run three, three, three lead, bottom-of-the-order type guys, whoosh, 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 and there's your save. That's where, the, that's where you win that category, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, for, for me, that's what playing simulation leagues and managing 
um, you know, where you're actually managing a game, um, batter to batter, you know the value of that guy who can come in and get six outs in the seventh and eighth. Um, that's huge. And, uh, and I think the young, maybe the younger managers that we're seeing coming into the game, uh, I think they are more open. You know, Rocco Baldelli, we see how the Twins are, are using their bullpen and there's no set closer to, uh, to fantasy manager chagrin. But um, I think that's the smart way to win baseball games. And when it comes down to it, that's what the managers you know, have to have is their guiding light to win those games. Winning games. That's what it's about. And you're right. I think managers are get just getting smarter about this and, and it's going to have effects. I think it's going to have long run effects on the, on the fantasy game because we're all going to have to recalibrate the, how to, how to pursue saves. And I think what it's going to end up being is going to be a volume play where you take a guy like Liam Hendricks because you know he's going to get the bulk of the chances. But I think guys like him are going to be increasingly rare at the same time. And it's also kind of spurring the saves plus holds, you know, as a category, as as a way to kind of, you know, adapt to what's really going on in the game. Yeah, there's lots of rules changes. I know lots of leagues are doing it. I wouldn't push for it in any league I'm in because I think holds, I think saves are a dumb stat, first of all, but I think (laughs) holds are even worse. And I think there's got to be a better way to figure out who, what relievers you have who are effective. And I think maybe one of them might be, call it a quality relief appearance or something like that. If he comes in in any situation and gets three outs without giving up a a walk or or a hit, figure out something like that and make it happen. I thought your worst prediction at the time, and still, is that Joe Adele is going to be this year's Cedric Mullins. Uh, you're partly right in that Mullins is hitting barely over 200, <laughs> but uh, Adele was even worse. And now Adele's been sent down, and uh, boy, I don't like his chances of getting back anytime soon, especially with Taylor Ward uh, doing what Taylor Ward's doing. Exactly, yeah. That uh, that prediction that was, was very bold and was a big whiff, just like uh, Adele's 36.4% strikeout rate. But, um, you know, it was one of those, you look at opportunity again, and somebody who looked like he was making some progress, and he had cut down on his strikeout rate from, you know, in previous years. So he was making progress there, and to get full-time at bats, I felt like that would make, you know, make him a little bit more comfortable make him a little bit more relaxed and, and have all the healthy angels hitters around him. I mean, the angels have been one of the surprise teams this season, but really should they have been if everybody is healthy, you know, if Mike Trout is in the lineup and Anthony Rendon is in the lineup and, and Shohei Otani's in the lineup, you know, that's a pretty decent offense. And then uh, I guess what I didn't see was, as you mentioned, Taylor Ward coming in and just being, you know, a superstar in the first uh, first few weeks of the season. And because of that, there was no room for Adele to be in the outfield every day. Brandon Marsh is, is a pretty good player in his own right and was certainly outplaying Adele. And as a left-handed hitter, was going to see you know the majority of the at-bats if they were in a platoon situation. So it makes sense for the Angels to send Adele to the minor leagues, let him play every day again, build that confidence back up. I still think the kid has a bright future, but um, he's not going to achieve the heights that uh, I felt like he was capable of coming into this season. Yeah, I think there's an element here of early season bias. I was talking about this last week. 
on the show where a guy goes, you know, 14 games without a hit or something like that in the middle of the season and nobody really takes notice. And maybe they go, huh, that's weird. But if it's the first 14 games of the season, everybody pulls their hair out and starts uh, running around looking for a fire extinguisher. Uh, although what a fire extinguisher has to do with pulling your hair out, I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> pretty, pretty poor effort at a metaphor there. Uh, you're listening. But I love the image. I love the image. <laughs> my hair, my hair. Well, maybe your hair's on fire. That's why you're pulling it out. I think that there you go. Uh, there's a hair on fire thing, uh, a cliche that I must have mixed We'll workshop that too. Let's workshop <laughs> right, that yeah. too. We've got the Porcello <laughs> and we've got hair on fire. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, on Tuesday at usatoday.com, you had a piece about 10 early season Major League standouts. And of course, the question is whether they can keep standing out. Before we get to some of the specific players you mentioned, as a general rule, how do you think fantasy managers should respond to unusually fast or, for that matter, unusually slow starts? Yeah, I generally... I let the first month go by to kind of let stats settle. I mean, there are, there are some strikeout rates and walk rates. Uh, those stats are among those that stabilize more quickly than some of the others. So you take a look at maybe those to see if there's a, you know, a major indication of a direction that a player is going in. But I, I feel like you've got to give them at least a month before you start making especially on the guys that you are counting on or were counting on the bottom of your roster you can churn all you want look for the hot hand and get rid of them and pick somebody else up but for the guys that you're you know you're counting on to be in your lineup every single week um at least give them a month and and remember too that this april you know the season started later in april than it usually does so we're a smaller portion of the first month you know as we get into may now uh, what, what did the season start? April 7th. So yeah, we're at a month now and uh, okay, now let's start taking a look at some of these guys and see um, what could be real and what's still uh, just a small sample size, uh, you know, anomalies. Well, we wrapped up the last segment talking about the angels and Taylor Ward's name naturally came up and uh, certainly he's a standout uh, 2015 first rounder. I wrote down, and after mm-hmm. seven, 17 games, 75 plate appearances, his slash line was 371, 480, 710. So that's a, what, 1190 OPS. I don't know what it is as of today, but it's still really, really good. And now they've got him at the leadoff spot, which is a pretty smart move, I think, for a guy who's on basing to that level, and it could really help his runs. Five homers, 13 RBIs, 16 runs scored. He'd be leading the league in OPS if he qualified, which he didn't quite. I, I think he might have by now. How real can this explosion of Taylor Ward's be? Well, I was I was watching the um, the Angels Red Sox game the other day, and uh, he came up and hit a clutch home run, you know, off Matt Barnes, uh, and Angels, you know, broke the game open. I don't know that this guy looks pretty legit. I mean, again, we're talking about some of the things, you know, plate discipline, strikeout rates, walk rates, pretty good early indicators. Um, he 13 walks, 15 strikeouts. You know, that's an excellent ratio. So again, put him, that's the guy you want at the top of the order, setting the table for Trout and, and, and Rendon and Otani and, and those guys. So I think Joe Madden, and he said this at the beginning of the year and we didn't, I don't know, as fantasy managers or baseball analysts, I don't know if we gave Joe Madden enough 
uh, enough weight for these words that he said. But when Taylor Ward comes back, because he did miss the first week or so of the season, uh, I think it was a groin injury or something that he was recovering from. But Taylor Ward will be an everyday player. And uh, I think some of us looked, especially those who were invested in Joe Adele, and said, well, how is he going to be in the outfield when Joe Adele's there and Mike Trout's there and Brandon Marsh is there? I, I think we've seen why uh, Joe Madden was very encouraged and, and so optimistic about what Ward was going to do. So I, I think, obviously, he's not going to have a batting average on balls and play over 400 all season long. But I think this is somebody who, again, is is getting regular playing time and just seems to be getting better because of it. So I'm, I'm kind of buying in and I, I did jump on him in a couple of leagues and pick him up. Um, and he could be one of those guys that, uh, you know, can be difference makers because you have him from the beginning of the season all the way through the end. So it sounds like you're holding on uh, Taylor Ward. Yeah, definitely. So. Anthony Rizzo's off to a red-hot start. He's got nine home runs, seven of them in Yankee Stadium. And I'm curious on the bigger picture, uh, you can tell me if you think Rizzo's a hold or a, buy, a sell high or whatever you want, but I'm more curious about the home road split. And I've seen some analysis in other places that says, you know, you should sell high on Rizzo because of this home road split. And I think to myself, I don't know if he's going to hit seven home runs every 25 games in Yankee stadium. They play a lot of games in Yankee stadium. They're the Yankees. They do. So I mean, <laughs> at that pace, he's like a 60 home run hitter. If he doesn't hit a single one on the road, how important are home road splits when you're thinking about these kind of early season um, questions as far as breakouts? Well, I think certainly Yankee stadium fits Anthony Rizzo very well. And um, a couple of those home runs that he hit would be home runs in no other ballpark except for Yankee Stadium. So um, he's, you know, he's a veteran hitter. He's, he's very patient, got good plate discipline. And you know, I, would, I would suspect that he's the kind of player who can adapt his swing to Yankee Stadium. If, you know, if the opportunity presents itself for cheap home runs down the, the, the right field line, then I think Anthony Rizzo is certainly capable of doing that. So in, in that regard... Um, yeah, he's, he's not as great, certainly, um, and much worse on the road, but if you're in in fantasy leagues and you have somebody else, you can slot in at that position, you can kind of manipulate it. So you get the best of Anthony Rizzo without necessarily getting all of the worst of him. So, uh, I I think that's one of the things he's, he's not going to lead the, uh, the American league in home runs, I don't believe. Um, but yes, you can. Uh, you can take advantage of what he's taking advantage of in kind of the same fashion. I did a little bit of quick algebra there and uh, seven home runs in 27 games prorates to 42 in 182. So 21 home runs at home if they, uh, cause they only play half their games there. But in this environment, I don't know if, if 21 home runs is that great, but he is going to hit home runs in other parks. He is not going to True. get shut out. He hasn't been shut out so far. I think that's interesting. I will say one thing, too, um, just to finish up on Rizzo, is that he's pulling the ball, too, more than he ever has. And I think like a 60% pull rate is the, what I looked at. And you know, I think that's going to cost him in terms of batting average if he continues to do that because of the shift. Um, so maybe the, if you're looking for him to, to give you batting average, um, that's probably a, a false flag. That's an interesting thought. 
I was listening to a Blue Jays game, and normally their broadcast team is where sabermetrics goes to die. But one of them <laughs> mentioned that more and more teams, including Toronto, are shifting the infield differently from the outfield because just because mm-hmm. a guy pulls his fly balls to right doesn't mean he pulls his ground balls to right. And I wonder if, given the back control that Rizzo has displayed throughout his career, and this year as well, I wonder if he can, when he gets to a place where if they shift him or if the if the left field fence is enticingly close, he seems like he might be a good enough hitter to take advantage of that, at least to some extent, and and um, mitigate the risk of being a full-time pull hitter. Well, and I think their Yankees opponents would certainly take that in Yankee Stadium rather than you know him hitting fly balls that would be outs in 29 parks and a home run in Yankee Stadium. So uh, that would I, I, I would imagine that teams would be fine with that trade-off, especially if they're playing in New York. Eric Hosmer of San Diego was leading the majors in April. He was hitting 389. We talked about George Brett earlier. I think he hit 390 in that year that he mm-hmm. chased 400. Uh, you note that he's been hitting the ball hard, but a lot of it on the ground, as, again, we just finished talking about, 60% of his balls in play on the ground. How much does a high ground ball percentage really weigh on batting average, especially if you're hitting it hard? Well, it, it does help. Um, you're going to get fewer, obviously, it's it's hard to hit a home run on a ground ball, but um, you, you're going to get those balls that go through. Again, a left-handed hitter, though, is prone to the shift taking away a lot of those. And if you're not hitting it, you know, not only hard, but you have to hit it where there isn't a fielder. And uh, the odds of, of Hosmer being able to continue that, um, I think, are, are fairly low. So this, to me, is sort of a, you know, a, a mirage for the first month of the season um, because we kind of know what Eric Hosmer is. You know, he's 32 years old, and while you may have a resurgence, um, we've seen veteran players have you know, those, those huge seasons. Joey Votto last year, for instance. But in that regard, you know, Votto was selling out for power. And I don't think Hosmer is one of those, you know, those kinds of guys. He's more of a, a line drive ground ball hitter. And um, I think one of the benefits for Hosmer though, so far is that San Diego has been a very good offense. They've had a lot of contributions up and down the lineup. So he's had opportunities and um, he's certainly ma- maximized those opportunities and uh, been very valuable. But you know, in terms of, you know, in, in baseball HQ speak, fact or fluke, I think this is more of a fluke than it is a fact. That's interesting. And I was curious what you thought about another baseball HQ mantra, which is once you display a skill, you own it. And uh, over the last few years, I, I looked this up and in 2016, Hosmer was top 40 in MLB in barrels, top 15 in max EV. And then it's steadily downhill from there now to the point where I think he's 90th in barrels and 115th in max EV. And I'm wondering if you think, is it also, or where's the threshold at which you don't own it anymore? Yeah, I think once you get to be you know past age 30 or so, that um, you're not going to get some of those skills that you had as a 25-year-old back. And um, that's, you know, Hosmer, I think, is a, is a smart hitter. He's still a good hitter. But remember, in the offseason, the Padres were looking to unload his contract. And, you know, they did acquire Luke Voigt, who I think a lot of people, you know, in, in seeing that acquisition say, oh, well, there's your platoon partner. You know, and Luke Voigt is going to get more, 
at bats on the strong side than Hosmer. Or, well, no, reversed. But um, but still, to be able to take some of Hosmer's at bats the at first base, um, I think that was kind of the indication that, that the Padres were not really that excited about what Hosmer had going forward. So um, that's that's kind of what I look at. It, maybe he can have a mini resurgence, but I don't think you know the ceiling certainly isn't there for Hosmer, even if he does, you know, continue to hit the ball hard. I thought the question for the Padres was at least partially a question of value for money. And they thought that if they could, you know, doff his uh, salary off on somebody else, that they could Mm -hmm. use the money more productively than they're using it for him. And we all think about that, even in our, in our auction leagues, where you, if you can trade guys, but you have to stay under a salary cap or there's some kind of reason to say, you know, this guy's okay, but I can't afford to, spend $29 of my one six or two sixty on. Okay. I need great. And maybe uh, that was a consideration for them as well. Uh, you're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA today. And let's talk about some pitchers who had hot starts. Maybe the biggest surprise of all Tyler McGill of the Mets may only made the rotation because DeGrom got hurt, but he's been terrific through his first five starts. Anyways, four Oh one ninety three whip under one. And he had a share, I think, in one of the first 17 pitcher no hitters in baseball yeah. history. How confident are you about McGill? Um, fairly confident. I, I mean, his fastball, he throws hard, which you have to do um, to be uh, successful, it seems, this season as a pitcher. Um, uh, you know, up 95, 96 miles per hour average fastball, which was up uh, one mile per hour from last year. So he's getting more swings and misses. Um, I think, uh, according to fan graphs, 13.3%, um, which is higher than the league average, uh, two, two points higher than, than the league average. Um, so yeah, I, and the Mets are playing well. That's the other thing too. The Mets improved considerably, um, on defense, getting Starling Marte out there, um, in the off season. Um, so yeah, I, I think Tyler McGill is somebody that, you know, when Jacob deGrom comes back, they're certainly not going to boot McGill from the, uh, from the rotation. He's been, he's been very good and he's, he's young enough that he can still take that step forward. And I think one of the things, and, and I have no data to back this up, but just think about it. If you're a young pitcher and you can throw hard and you can share and pick the brain of Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom, I think that you've got to be able to have, uh, you know, to take that to your advantage and use some of the things that they know and their knowledge to make you a better pitcher. And I think that maybe more than anything could be uh, contributing to to McGill's step forward that he's made this season. Yeah, there is that. And there's the narrative about him changing his mechanics somewhat and all of those things. And ordinarily, we're advised not to pay too much attention to narratives, but I think narratives that explain things that I can see and make sense are an exception to that rule. Uh, this, the, the change is obvious. There's a legitimate explanation that doesn't rely on, you know, uh, ephemeral stuff. It's actually solid, substantial stuff. And I think, I think you're right about that. The one worry now I think about though, is when DeGrom comes back, they're going to want to baby him along. And I wonder if they'll just, instead of replacing somebody in the roster when DeGrom comes back, they'll just add DeGrom to the rotation and go six men. And everybody loses starts. Eh, could be. It could be. But then, you know, the Mets have had injury issues for uh, for forever, it seems like. So when if they get six healthy starting pitchers, 
Um, I, I have no idea. The, the, you know, the, the earth may uh, start crumbling or something. I don't know. Certainly Carrasco has, while he's been effective at times, he has also looked like not a hundred percent physically. Another yeah. big story among pitchers, Kyle Wright in Atlanta, in his four previous seasons, I figured this out all by myself, a 6.56 ERA, 169 whip, 18% strikeouts, 15% walk. So a 3% strikeout minus walk. And this year, 174, 097, 31 and 6. It seems to me like it's just too big a step forward to be relied upon. But what do you think? Yeah, it is. And and I think we, we can certainly temper our expectations a little bit. Um, but again, one of the things that different from from last year is that additional velocity on his fastball um, up 1.8 miles per hour. I, I think was uh, was what I had when I when I wrote that piece. And you've got to like that. Um, uh, the issue I think that will will see some major regression with Kyle Wright is giving up home runs. At one home run allowed in 31 innings. I mean that's that's uh, that's amazingly good. And, um, even with the, the mushy ball, uh, you'd have to expect a few more home runs than that. Um, but again, he's getting a lot of, of, of swings and misses, a lot of called strikes too. um, sixth overall among starting pitchers in called strikes plus whiffs, which is, uh, an interesting new stat, um, that I've just begun looking at more frequently over the past year or so. Um, that tells a lot about a pitcher's stuff. And, uh, and right now, Kyle Wright is, is certainly showing the best of, of pretty much everything. And he was a first-round pick. So, I mean, there's that pedigree, too, um, even though he hasn't really broken through in four other previous uh, cups of coffee in the major leagues. Yeah, it's an interesting story. My concern here, and of course I always have a concern, is that uh, a pitcher who shows up with a, a relatively substantial increase in fastball velocity might be selling out to the extent that he won't be able to sustain it for 162 games or 33 starts or however you want to calibrate it. If the gain is because of mechanical changes that are sustainable and don't put extra stress, I buy it. Otherwise I don't. And the problem is we don't know <laughs> at this point. Anyway. Right. Exactly. And, um, but I, certainly from the things that we can measure so far, uh, Wright has been has been very good. So um, in terms of uh, selling high, I I think I'm going to hold on Kyle Wright for now. And the other thing you mentioned is that his home run rate is way way down, and this makes me think of something else I've been thinking about about the soft ball and whether it's going to be like that all year or whether they're going to tinker with it. And I think a place to mine for value might be guys who are actually pretty good, but home runs kill them. Because there's if there's going to be a lot less of the home runs, then maybe some of these guys whose strand rates are adversely affected because of home runs, all of a sudden the strand rates won't be that badly affected, and that means their ERAs go down, you know, they, they stay in games longer, all these kind of things. Yeah, I, I, that's that's uh, a good point. And I, I wrote about, I remember writing about that beginning of last year, in fact, because there was some talk about, you know, the, the new baseball and and we thought they were all going to be the same re, you know restricted flight balls and then they ended up mixing in some of the uh, the super fun balls last year but I remember looking at some of those stats about pitchers that had high strikeout rates but also way above average home run to fly ball rates 
And um, it was funny because Stephen Matz came up as one of those guys, and so did Robbie Ray. <laughs> and and one of them had a uh, you know a, a spectacular year. Um, and uh, I, I don't know that that was the one metric that could have forecasted it, but I think you're right in that the pitchers who do allow a lot of fly balls um, may certainly be much, much, much better this year than, than we may have projected them to. Joe Ryan of Minnesota was a bit of a tout darling in draft season. I wanted him everywhere, and I got him in just one league. Glad of it. He's been terrific so far, ERA under two, whip under one. But as you note, he doesn't have overpowering stuff. But I've heard that his, his delivery is very deceptive, that the batters yeah. find it very difficult to pick the ball up because of the way his arm comes through the, the throwing zone. Are you in on Ryan as a sell high? Would you, would you hold on? Well, I was one of those Joe Ryan fans too in the uh, at the beginning of the season. I think I may have had him higher than than the industry standard was, um, and it's one of those again, or the whole is greater than the sum of his parts. Um, th- there's something about him that it, it just allows him to overperform, and that that fastball that's not coming in, but uh, an average of 92 miles per hour in his five starts, batters are hitting 111 against it. Um, I watched I watched his start against the Orioles, and he got uh, sort of nickeled and dimed and babbitt uh, out of the game before he completed five innings, um, and didn't get the win in that game. But yeah, the the watching him is there's something about his arm angle, and the announcers were talking about that he played water polo growing up, and if you played water polo, um, you know you have to kind of have a little more sidearm delivery. And he incorporated that into his pitching motion. And that's why it's a little bit more unusual. He's harder to pick up. And it makes that 92-mile-per-hour fastball more effective than your standard 92 miles per hour. So uh, I, I like Joe Ryan. I think the, um, I think the Twins are, are good at developing pitchers. And uh, I'm, despite the fact that you know, the numbers may not say that uh, that he can continue to, to have this much success. He's always kind of overperformed his metrics. So I, I I like Ryan. I think I'm I'm holding on and and I'm in on him as well. The sabermetricians and statcast analysts have a stat called perceived velocity, where a guy whose real velocity might be just say 92 for the sake of argument, but the batters perceive it as faster for a variety of different reasons. And I haven't checked what Joe Ryan's perceived velocity is, but I don't think deception is part of that calculation, which means he wouldn't benefit from that either. Sometimes you can find some pretty interesting pitchers by finding some pitchers with big deltas between perceived and real velocity because everybody looks at real and they ignore perceived. I think that's a, a, a pathway to find value, and that Joe Ryan is yet again something different. Mm-hmm. Yep, the, uh, the Billy Bean... Uh, concept of undervalued assets that's not you know particularly valued properly by the market yeah that's the secret to winning fantasy baseball in a sentence right there that's for sure absolutely you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with steve gardner from usa today and steve as you know i always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes Uh, these are players who are going to be good value or bad value the rest of the season Let's start with your boons, players who look like good value in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a boon? Well, um, I don't know. Can can 
I say Kyle Tucker um, because he started out very slowly, but you know his expected stats are are so much better. Um, had a had a, a walk off hit the other night. Uh, I, th- I think the expected stats for his slugging, for instance, four twenty seven, or his his standard uh, slugging is four twenty seven, but expected six thirty nine. Um, so maybe take advantage if if you can of uh, of somebody who's disappointed with Kyle's Tucker's slow start, but. Uh, I don't know that there are that many people that are willing to sell, but uh, I think he's going to be he's going to be very good. Yeah, I think that ship might have sailed. Uh, who's a nationally yep. better? It could be a boon. Um, along the same lines, J.D. Davis of the Mets is a guy that I like. Um, his expected slugging or his current slugging is three fourteen. Expected slugging five sixty nine. And uh, again, on that Mets, he hits the ball very hard too. And uh, and I think because of the DH in the National League, we were wondering. Who was going to get at bats? Who would benefit from that? Um, I think J.D. Davis is is one of those guys that that certainly will. Over to the mound. How about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this with with the Twins and not having a uh, a closer in particular, but Joan Duran um, looks really good. I mean, he's throwing a hundred miles per hour, and maybe just maybe. He gets that trusted spot and gets more saves than than we think. I, I think he's only has maybe one so far this season, but I, I think that Rocco Baldelli will see the advantage of that. I don't think he's a two inning guy, kind of guy. I think he's one of those guys that you put in in a close game. Um, great strikeout to walk ratio. I was nineteen to two in twelve innings. Um, so he's the guy I think I would I would uh, buy in on. The one save while he was on my bench in Tout American League, but I think he's going yeah. to get a lot of saves. But I'm a little concerned that he won't get the real the, a ton of saves, like all of them or most of them, because Rocco Baldelli will play the hot the guy he needs in a leverage situation. So if it's you know one run lead, three, four, five in the eighth, I think Duran might be the guy in that situation. Depending on how the other guys in that uh, bullpen uh, perform, how about a National League pitcher who's a boon? I'm going to go a little bit off the board. A guy that I liked in the preseason, Alex Cobb um, for the Giants. Uh, coming off a groin injury, he's just getting back into, uh, into the, the rotation. Um, he's, he's allowed a 400 opponent slugging percentage so far this year with an expected slugging of 196, which is the biggest gap in all of baseball. So when, when it comes out to a 540 ERA, but a 146 expected ERA. Um, and he got you know, Babbitt to death in his first start off the injured list the other day. Um, I think it was against Washington. Look for Alex Cobb to be much, much better. And and he's probably available maybe on, on a lot of waiver wires. Do you put a lot of credence into the narrative that the San Francisco has figured something out about reclaiming these formerly successful, recently not so successful guys? I sort of do. Um, just because we've seen so many examples of it, um, you know, from, from Kevin Gossman and, uh, and, and, and Anthony DiSclafani, um, that have struggled elsewhere and they come to San Francisco and, and they all of a sudden become very, very good. I'm going to keep buying in until they prove me wrong. How about that? I think you're exactly right. I think there are a few organizations like that. We, we've been talking about that on Baseball HQ Radio for quite a while. Trust the organization. Like organizations mm-hmm. that win lots of games, there's a reason that they win lots of games year in and year out. And the best example I can think of is not a 
baseball example, it's the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL. Yeah. Like they're a very successful team. They never, because they're successful, they don't get top draft picks, but somehow they always get the best receivers out of the draft picking second <laughs> round, third round, et cetera. I think that's just a really well-run sports operation. And I think there yeah. are teams in baseball like that, but the, the, anytime I think of it, it's always the Steelers that I think of first. And I'm not a Steelers fan, so don't get me wrong. I'm a Raiders fan. And the, pretty much the opposite is true in their case. Didn't used to be, but uh, yeah, not so good now. Let's go over to the Baines. These are players you think might uh, be underperformers for the balance of the season. Uh, again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a batter you think is a potential Bane? Well, I, I think on on the whole, the uh, the Cleveland Guardians have have overperformed offensively. Um, I, I, I write a column every year about the the Tuffy Awards for the players that have the great first week and we may never hear from them again. Uh, Steven Kwan was that guy for me. Um, but I, I think also Andres Jimenez is another one who's had a, a very fine start to the beginning of the season, but not a whole lot of power. Um, he's hitting over 300, but expected batting average of 262. So uh, you could you could take Jimenez, you could take Kwan, you could take Owen Miller, who's also having a, a great start. Um, any of those... Uh, you could you could take all three of them. Uh, I think I think all three will will definitely regress, and I think Quan has certainly started to a little bit already. Quan homered his first time just the other night against Jose Barrios, and the reason I know that is because I have Jose Barrios on my tout team. Yes, <laughs> who's a National League batter who could be a bane? I hesitate to say this because he's been great. Uh, Rowdy Telez, you know, just had an eight RBI game. Um, another, another homer the other night. And, uh, but his, we talked about home and road splits, um, earlier with, with Anthony Rizzo, he has a 1250 OPS at home, 606 on the road. So Milwaukee's a great place to hit. And yes, he'll get to play, you know, half of his, uh, half of his games there. But I, I think right now, um, Rowdy Telez has just come, uh, onto the, the radar, so to speak, because of his one big game. I, I think that may be a little bit of a mirage, even though, you know, he's, he's still a, a fine hitter, but he's not guaranteed playing time every day. And uh, I think he's going to kind of regress a little bit more. One of those kind of situations where he's one slump away from gathering a lot of bench time. I think you're right yep. about that. Uh, Rowdy Telez was another tout darling, though, in the, uh, the offseason. Uh, who's a Bane pitcher in the American League? I think Michael Waka is uh, the one that I point to. I mean, great start so far, 1.38 ERA, but he's only striking out 6.6 batters per nine. He's walking almost four per nine um, and obviously has a, a, you know, not a, not a great swinging strike rate either. And the other thing too is he's not allowing home runs um, when that was a big problem for him in previous years. So I think the, the regression monster is coming to bite Michael Waka um, pretty soon. Unless he's one of those guys who's benefiting from the unhappy sad ball. <laughs> well, that's true. And, uh, and in Boston, I guess, you know, if, if you got him hitting it out to, uh, to right field, there's an awful lot of room in that right, right center area. So, eh, possibly, but I, I don't think he can certainly keep this up. And in the National League, how about a pitcher, Bain? I will say Madison Bumgarner. Um, again, uh, the the strikeout to walk rate. I, even though he has, you know, his ERA is what uh, one point three three something like that. It, it's been ridiculous, but yet it's come with fifteen strikeouts and just eleven walks. 
So your your expected ERA up over up over four. Um, certainly, I think a, a wake up call is coming soon for him. Steve Gardner's Boons, Kyle Tucker, J.D. Davis, Juan Duran, and Alex Cobb. His Baines, pretty much the whole Cleveland roster except for uh, Jose Ramirez. Uh, Rowdy Tellez in Milwaukee, Michael Waka of Boston, Madison Bumgarner of Arizona. Steve, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Steve Gardner. Sure. You can uh, see my work in the pages of USA Today Sports Weekly. Um, I'm uh, online at uh, fantasy.usatoday.com, and you can follow me at Twitter on Twitter at Steve A. Gardner. All one word or underscores or what? No underscores, just mash it all together. I was going to make a joke about underscores in the current offensive climate in baseball, but it seems like a little too obvious. <laughs> Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> all right. Speaking of underscores, what do you think of the all of one nothing games? Uh, Steve, thanks a million for uh, appearing on the show today. It's always fun to talk with you, and I hope we get to do it again real soon. Sounds great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Patrick. Steve Gardner covers baseball and fantasy baseball at USA Today. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Milwaukee left-handed starting pitcher Ethan Small is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. While the Nashville Sounds continue to make noise in AAA, one Nashville pitcher has been quietly ascendant. With a unique delivery, perhaps reminiscent of Clayton Kershaw, but from a completely over-the-top slot, according to Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing, his June 24, 2021 Miners column on BaseballHQ.com, 25-year-old Milwaukee Brewers starting pitcher Ethan Small has completely dominated AAA in 2022 to the tune of a .77 ERA and a 107 whip through his first five appearances. Yes, it's a small sample size, but consider this. Small has bolstered his career 155 ERA in the Miners with a blistering strikeout rate of 32% in 2022, matching his career average. Sounds pretty good, right? But perhaps those numbers, especially those strikeout numbers, may be deceptive. That's why 25-year-old Milwaukee Brewers starting pitcher Ethan Small, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. To clarify, Small's pitching statistics are both spectacular and accurate to the best of our knowledge. However, it's Small's delivery that's deceptive. According to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, Small hides the ball in crossfire delivery and induces weak contact by sequencing and painting corners. 
No pitch stands out, according to the minor league baseball analyst, but small effectively changes speeds and keeps the ball down. Sounds like a ground ball pitcher, right? <laughs> Indeed. Small has yet to give up a home run in 2022 and has only allowed four. Four home runs total in his professional career, albeit it's a short professional career. Drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers in the first round of the 2019 draft, 28th overall, Small has progressed through the Brewers' system almost as fast as he progresses through lineup cards. Transitioning rapidly through three levels of the minors in 2021, stopping only long enough to be named the Brewers' 2021 Robin Yount winner as Milwaukee's best minor league pitcher, Small appears to be close to making his major league debut. In a recent Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article dated May 3rd, 2022, Brewers Farm Director Tom Flanagan was quoted as saying, Small has been excellent in each of his starts for the Nashville Sounds. He's still trying to incorporate the slider more, Flanagan continued, which is a big part of his arsenal and a big part of his remaining development. Perhaps making 25-year-old Milwaukee Brewers starting pitcher, Ethan Small, a big part of your future development as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the conspiracy with the softer balls. If you've been following along with modern media for any length of time, you know that nothing sells like a good solid conspiracy theory. And I like money as much as the next guy, unless the next guy is Jeff Bezos, so in this edition of Extra Innings, I'm going to let you in on the conspiracy in which Major League Baseball is using the 2022 Sad Bummer Ball for monetary gain. They did it before with the Happy Fun Ball, so why not try it a second time? Oh, you ask, but the Happy Fun Ball was good for business. Everyone digs the long ball, homers put bums in seats, and eyeballs on TV screens. But here's the thing. All homers all the time wasn't working to maintain fan interest, especially among younger fans. It turns out that watching a ball fly past a guy's head, land in seats far, far away, and then watch the same splendid athlete who hit the ball take a leisurely jog of 120 yards in 25 or 30 seconds while everyone else stands around, not all that exciting. I've mentioned before here on Baseball HQ Radio about the interview I once heard with Theo Epstein, the former baseball executive whom Major League Baseball has hired to find out how to make the game more interesting and appealing. Epstein polled the potential baseball audience, and he found out they really wanted to see three things. More triples, more great fielding plays, and more stolen bases. And the crazy thing is that triples and stolen bases are among the most scarce outcomes in the entire game. In 2021, less than 2% of plate appearances ended in triples or stolen bases. Homers, strikeouts, and walks made up 35% of outcomes. And you know what they have in common, homers, strikeouts, and walks? Nothing happens. It's boring. That's the problem. There's too many boring outcomes and too few fun and exciting outcomes. The culture of baseball might be to blame. The culture is powered by the benefits of winning games, and it has relied on smart engineers who are engineering optimal processes to win games. And those smart engineers realized pretty quickly that the best way to win games was to hit lots of homers and get lots of strikeouts. 
And that's what happened in the culture. We saw more and more power arm pitchers, carefully trained and tuned like Formula One sports cars, to throw harder and with more spin to generate more and more swings and misses. Pitching coaches optimized their pitch mixes and the usage patterns to optimize those as well. On offense, swing planes were altered, plate approaches adjusted, and mechanics tweaked to maximize exit velocity and optimize launch angles, all in pursuit of the holy grail of the next home run. But as noted, while strikeouts and homers help win modern baseball games, they were boring. But they worked. Yeah, but they were boring. But they worked. So, how do you change that culture? Well, Maybe you change the baseball to make homers much less common, take away the home runs. And not all of them, but home runs are down by almost a quarter this year from last, and even strikeouts are down a little. But what happens if the sad bummer ball stays for the long run? Maybe the trends will continue. Maybe the calculation is that more engineers will start to calculate that the path to winning is avoiding strikeouts, reaching base, advancing runners what we call nowadays not always favorable, small ball. But while it might not be as big as the current game, small ball is probably going to be more exciting. It pretty much has to be more exciting than what we're watching now, and more exciting will mean more fans. And more fans, of course, means more money. If you want to check the progress of a conspiracy to make baseball smaller, more fun, and more interesting, we would expect to see steps like these that we already have. We'd expect measures to reduce strikeouts, like grading umpires for their adherence to the strike zone, and to stop calling balls four inches outside the zone as strikes. We might even see more interest in automated ball and strike calling, and I think that's happening. Narrowing the zone would make it easier for hitters to home in even more precisely on hittable balls, and that would mean more home runs, so we'd expect measures to reduce how far batted balls fly when they're hit. Like making the ball softer, less aerodynamic, whether through manufacturing or humidoring or seam raising or some combination of all the above. If fly balls become much more often automatic outs, the optimal response will be to hit fewer fly balls. We'd expect measures to restrict pitcher optimization. Well, they got rid of the sticky stuff, they require relievers to pitch to three hitters, and they're requiring teams to limit the number of pitchers on their rosters all designed to restrict pitcher optimization. And we would expect measures to increase stolen base success, like making the bags a little bigger to reduce the distance between them. More success in stolen bases will lead to more attempts. Eventually, it wouldn't be too long before someone decides to field a team that looks a lot like Whitey Herzog's mid-80s Cardinals. Speed all over the diamond, top-notch defense, and run creation via small ball. We might already be seeing it with the intriguing appearance of guys like Stephen Kwan in Cleveland, old-fashioned slap hitters who hit singles, get on base, and move around. If you're like me, you hope I'm right. It would be good for baseball, and it would be good for fantasy baseball, and I can't wait. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 17 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Steve Gardner from USA Today. 
Steve's a really good fantasy player in his own right, and he's a top-notch analyst and writer at the USA Today newspaper and their website. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, don't you know? Our Market Watch commentators were Matt Beagle and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Tanner Smith, the Arsenal Report columnist at Baseball HQ, as well as the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Tanner Smith next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.